The Jason Cabinets Experience is sponsored by Cabinets HR. Cabinets HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time on HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. This is the Jason Cabinets Experience, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cabinets Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Here at Cabinets HR, we're launching a crowdfunding campaign on the Refund of Crowdfunder app. To learn more how you can support us and become an early investor at Cabinets HR, go to https refunder.com slash Cabinets HR. Our guest today is Alan Gonzalez. Alan, ready to be great today? Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Alan, when's the last time you played soccer? Oh, the last time I played soccer was a few months ago because uh, I actually left the team that I was, uh, I had been playing soccer for like, <laughs> 10 years, um, but I actually left because there was so much going on in my knees and isn't working right. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, so what position do you play? Oh, well, because I play on a small kind of um, indoor field. It's kind of all over, okay. um, but every almost everything except goalkeeper. So do you like play in high school or college or anything? Or just all been like you know, on the fun on the side? thing you do almost always fun on the side uh when i was in school i did wanted to play like with the rest of the teams yeah. but i i was never varsity i was i was always the b team okay. yeah um how often do you go to sandro games oh not that often oh, actually yeah. no maybe once a year do you yeah. yeah you have any like any favorite soccer team that are here in the u.s or anywhere in the world no not really i just watch it uh yeah. for the fun of it uh Something I do obsess about a little bit uh, is maybe the World Cup. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah this going to be here, what, 2025, 2026, I think, here in yes, Seattle? Yes, yes. Yeah. Man, you know, yeah, yeah I got I want to get a ticket, but, man, it's probably hard to get a ticket. They'll probably go pretty fast. Mm -hmm. You know they're going to be they're probably expensive as hell, too. That's right. That's right. And and I don't, I've never purchased a ticket for the World Cup. I think it involves lottery. And yeah, probably it's, so. It's not... As straightforward. Yeah, and then it was crazy. Like this World Cup, that World Cup was going to be like in Canada, United States, and Mexico. So That's I know the correct. U.S. has games in Seattle, Dallas, yes. other places, right? So that might make the tickets getting the tickets even harder because, like, it's not like all the World Cup games are in Seattle. There might be like maybe four or five here in mm -hmm. Seattle, maybe. I mean, I have no idea, but it's going to be hard. Most of the visitors um, to the World Cups across the world are just kind of coming from the U.S. So now that yeah. it's going to be in the U.S., yeah. it's going to be tough to get tickets. I know. Can you imagine the hotel prices in a World Cup? Uh, Thankfully, I, uh, I have a home around. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, the next talk about your guitar playing. Mm. That's something you picked up recently or you've already no. been doing it? No, that's when I I picked up the guitar when I was like in third grade in an elementary. And 
I remember having a guitar player, a guitar, like the, the instructor, he would come up with songs on the fly about us. Uh, they were funny and just kind of just, it was amazing. It was just a fun thing to do. And then in like sixth grade in elementary, I got to put, I got to be with the, like the middle school guitar uh, band. So that was kind of a proud moment for me that we were chosen. Like three kids from elementary moved up to the, like the next level guitar. Yeah. Now, did you, did you play like rock guitar, other kind of guitar? Like what kind of actual guitar music did you play? I play acoustic guitar. Okay. Um, I actually did start a band with my okay. wife okay. and two other friends, and I started playing guitar, uh, electric guitar, but I'm not good. I'm really not, no, it was, it was tough, but it was mostly for fun. Yeah, what was the last time you played in front of people? In front of people? In front no, of we, people. No, I've never played. Maybe the last time I played in front of people was at my wife's uh, birthday. Okay. And yeah, uh, we, we, I, we had a party and then there was a person playing guitar and I just took it from him and started playing with So a question, when you, when you did this, were you like kind of drunk and just went in 40, like no, you were sober? No, I was not drunk. No, you no, know, no. you're like, you know how some people like they do stuff when they're drunk, like, you know, yes. I don't, I really don't like playing the guitar in front of people, but I'm, I'm, I'm had a few drinks, you know. Uh-huh. No, no, no. This was kind of lighthearted and it was fun. Nice. So next, um, what kind of dog you have? I have a poodle dog uh, that we found in the streets of Mexico. Yeah, so it's, he's like a true like street dog in the sense that we just picked them up from the streets. Uh, so you just saw him and your heart and your heart's broke, or well, not mine, my wife, your wife, your wife's yeah, heart broke. Yeah, yeah. Like she, she's she, like, we're taking this dog home with us, Alan. That's right. I don't care right. what you say. And and uh, she she was asking me, uh, should we do this? Mm -hmm. um, and then I said, well, if you're going to take care of him and all that stuff. And she's like, no, 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 no. Because the moment this dog comes with us, then it's going to be both our responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And yeah. it's a lot of responsibility. Oh, yeah. It's a lot. Just uh, like having a kid. <laughs> pretty much. And so, How long have you had the dog? Huh? How long have you had the uh, dog? Four or five years. Okay. Yeah. So, and that dog was in Mexico. So, of course, we had to go through a bunch of process to kind of bring him into the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah. So the dog had to get a green car. <laughs> <laughs> he actually did, sort of. And then, and then we, we, when the dog came over here, we went through training. So he also got like education. So he's. Do you have to know how the dog? Can you t can someone tell you how old the dog is? How does that work? I don't know. When we took him to the vet, um, they look at the paws, mm -hmm. and I guess based on the wear mm -hmm. that the, the paws have, uh, they told us that it was one year old. Okay. Yeah. So pretty, not very. But how accurate is that if the dog was in the street, you know, on the street, the semen like tearing his paws up every day? Uh, that's what I would think. Uh, but um, I guess I trust the bed there. Yeah. The one true. thing I did notice is that when when we first got him, um, we cut all of the, I don't know, what's the word? The, um, what are you talking about? Yeah. All the hair. And he has a really big scar like mm. across the face. So mm. probably has a lot of stories. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who knew Poodle Poodle getting out there doing dog fighting? <laughs> I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Um, what's the last book you read? The last book I read, it's actually one I'm reading right now, is uh, The Idealist. Mm -hmm. It talks about the story of Jeffrey Sachs and how he wants to earl, um, uh, end world hunger uh, in Africa. Yeah. Okay. What kind of books do you usually read? Um, I used to read a lot of kind of technical books, and then I started doing... Um, 
reading club with a few friends. My wife is there and a few other friends from Mexico. And it was, and, and that really opened up my eyes to reading all sorts of things that I would never, ever read. Um, but I usually read uh, nonfiction more, more than anything, just kind of, and I, I like to read business and as of late, um, anything that is kind of relaxing, okay. like, uh, yeah. So what's a book you read that like you really like, like you could read this book like over and over and over again? Mm. What's the name? I don't, I don't remember the name, but um, it talks about the journey that migrants take from Mexico to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And there is this... Um, person that really documents the journey and he gives cameras disposable cameras to the to the migrants as they're going and they take pictures uh, on their journey and it's just like it really kind of opened up my eyes because you know migration we all know that it happens and that it's not great and all that stuff but like reading from people and their stories and how much they fight for a minimum wage job yeah. in the U.S. and all that stuff. It was really, really eye-opening and something that I truly recommend other people to look into. Um, just kind of makes you appreciate even more the small things that you have, everything that you have. And yeah. So next part, we're going to go back to migration in a minute, but next part of the question, this might be even harder for you, for you to answer. Mm. What's a book you read you're like, I've just wasted like two or three hours of my life reading this crap. Like mm. you was like, you could have erased the, that time from your life, like this, a complete waste of time. This book is horrible. Yeah. Because it was horrible. I don't, I don't remember, but I do remember reading books that, um, not wasted time, but I really didn't understand anything about what is being said. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like if I didn't read it, yeah. um, one of them being the labyrinth of solitude. Okay. Um, I just kind of went over my head. Uh, another one, the Steppenwolf. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I, this is too dense. I, like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Nice. And then you still play video games? I do. Yeah. Well, as when of a few can. months, not so much, yeah. but uh, I try. I think any, about them. <laughs> any of your favorite ones? I am a big fan of Zelda. Okay. Yeah. So right. I know the the newest Zelda installment just came out, but I haven't purchased it because yeah. I know that you waste too much time playing it versus doing your business. Well, yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. So when you back when you were like really playing video games, do you like experiment with different ones? Do you just like you maybe like maybe play the Madden or play like World of Warcraft or like play different games? Do you just no. like do you have like a one genre or genre you stick to? I don't have a genre. Um, from growing up, it was mostly kind of spending time with my friends, just kind of mostly multiplayer games, like, you know, Mario Kart, the Smash Brothers, anything that would put, like, get a lot of people in the room. Uh, those were kind of my, one of the big memories that I have. And the other one, of course, is just be playing by myself, like a Zelda game by myself. Like, that's it. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back to migration, right? I mean, everyone has their opinions on it, right? On, on the one hand, like, you know, people, they will say, like, they'll come, come and take our jobs. But like, mm -hmm. I don't know very America is trying to get paid, you know, like, I think it's like 20 cents a bucket to pick peaches or apples or whatever like that, you know, mm -hmm. like it's not happening right. 
And then, like, people always say, you know, oh, the migrants that come from Mexico. And in reality, they actually come from Honduras, Guatemala, Venezuela, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's a, it's a complicated thing, right? With no easy answer. On, on the one hand, people will say, well, they should follow the laws. But, like, if you come from Honduras and you get, like, seeing people get killed every day, like, you're trying to get, take better care of family and what you're going to do, right? Yeah. It's, it's not easy, I think. Definitely not easy. Um, and, I mean... I grew up um, in a big part of my growing up was in Texas. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of migration, a lot of people yeah. coming. Um, and I don't know, I, I've thought about this, but like, is it because you come into a country and you know that your status is kind of not legal? Mm-hmm. So you tend to mm, not break the law. Yeah. I mean, and with that same person, if they were in their country of origin, would that would that same person not break the law over there? That's a good point. So, I personally think that because you know you, you are, uh, your status is not. I mean, with and you do something and then you're kicked out, mm-hmm. you tend to behave better in this country, okay. in, in a country where you're not supposed to be. Um, and then, of course, there's people that just don't, don't care. Like, yeah, you'll do whatever you do wherever you are, regardless of your status. Um, are they coming to take jobs? I mean, yes, they are taking jobs. Do uh, people that are living here want to do those jobs? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they okay? And they, because they are also in this kind of status, they tend not to make a big fuss about um, being taken advantage of or exactly, like being screwed over. Exactly, you know, exactly. You know, oh, not getting a raise from themselves too. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I know when a when I retired from the Army, my first job, I, I worked at a, at a seafood plant in Alaska, right? Mm-hmm. And like all the workers were like on the line, like in the fish, they're either like Filipinos or like Somalians or like third country Africans, you know? Mm-hmm. We could never get to the United States. It's like they wouldn't do it because it was yeah. like backpacking work. And we paid good money, you know, like, you know, they got paid. Got people average like six, seven thousand dollars a month for what we're doing up there, but it's, it's backpacking work. And no American would do it. Maybe we had like a couple of Americans up there, right? But that was it, right? It's yeah. mainly Filipinos, and you know, the same thing with, um, I never heard about this, but in Florida, that's passed some kind of immigration law where, like, if you're, like, an employer, you have some kind of big... Something happened, right? So now, pretty much all the, you know, potentially undocumented workers have just left Florida. Like, there's no construction jobs. They're not... No one to pick the fruits or whatever. And then a, then a video with this one lady, like, oh, I'll do the job. Like, she quit after 30 minutes. Like, I can't yeah, do this, you know? That's right. That's right. And then one thing, too, that were like, you know, like... I think they get paid, like... I'm making this up, like, a dollar a bucket, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the most American, like, dollar, you know... And so this one American made like 20 bucks for one day, right? Because she couldn't do it, right? Or usually they would pay like, you know, uh, um, a regular worker like three, four dollars a day, right? Because they know how to do it so fast, right? So America, like, you know, needing to get paid like $30 an hour. Like the former, like, I can't afford to pay people $30 an hour, you know? So it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Um, one, one of the ideas, I mean, at some point, um, can we do something that basically, improves the living of people in, in their countries of origin yeah. such that they don't want to yeah. emigrate. Uh, and if they do, it's because of, if it's, it's a choice, it's a personal choice, not mm-hmm. because you need to. And one of the things that really stops that from happening, in my opinion, is kind of corruption. Yeah. And I've been really thinking about, well, 
what are the potential ways in which we can kind of reduce corruption in the countries of origin? And maybe the person that came into power um, has a good heart and he or she um, started with, with, with the right intentions, but in the journey of getting to the power, yeah. then it gets corrupted. What's the thing? Way. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolute, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yes, absolutely. So what are the tools that we have today such that we can kind of change some of that as well? Some of the things uh, I was thinking, uh, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, like having some sort of... Uh, computer system that would intervene or that the absolute decision wouldn't be just in one person. I mean, in this book that we're, I'm reading right now, um, uh, they talk about not having doctors in Africa, in rural Africa. And so here in the US, it's like AI is being regulated. Um, in one of those regulations, well, AI is like not supposed to or not should not make a medical diagnosis. Well, when your alternative is having no diagnosis at all, what could go wrong? Well, I guess a lot of things could go wrong, but what, what is the downside, the terrible downside of having an AI doctor in rural Africa? Well, the, where the alternatives not having anything at all and the patient just dying. Uh, in the same sense, could we have some sort of decision maker governmental decision maker that is AI that can assist or that can, not because they we don't have anything, but because they can make decisions um, and in some ways not being enticed by corruption yeah. in, the, in the same sense that a human does. Now, is that gonna be unbiased? No, it's not gonna be unbiased. It's gonna be completely biased on how it is being trained. But I still think that that might be better than just going around and paying the judge a money and then yeah. having him or her um, f uh, vote in your favor. Yeah. No one's killing me. Like, you no know, people are like, oh, they're all coming to like, do crime and drugs, whatever. Because I know some are too, but like, you got to think like this single mother walking her three kids from Honduras, like thousands of miles. Like, are you kidding me, right? Like, just mm -hmm. starting to get a better life. Another thing that kills me too, like, you know, like, like border town, like Brownsville, El Paso, there's a big, a town of Arizona, a lot of them go through, right? And then, like, and I know, like, you know, I know, like, Governor Abbott and the governor from Florida, a lot of criticism for, like, shipping something like New York City, Chicago. Mm -hmm. Like, and like, New York City, like, we can't handle this, right? Like, are you kidding, right? You're, you're New York City, right? You're mm -hmm. the one saying, you know, bring other people over here. Yeah. Like, you know, give this border town some relief, right? Yeah. I know, I know the biggest one, they, um, I think Governor DeSantis, I'm not saying it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. It was a him or, or Governor Abbott, they sent, like, 100 immigrants on a bus to um, Martha's Vineyard, right? Yeah. And Martin Vineyard, like, supposed to be, like, this, you know, progressive far left, you know, like, all kumbaya. And, like, I, I'm making this up maybe, like, within two weeks, they got rid of all the immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to take care of, you know. So, yeah. it's, I just think it's hypocritical to say, you know, bring everyone over here. But then, you know. When you actually have the problem in your hands. Yeah, it's yeah. a big difference, right? Because, like, I don't know, a Paso's getting, you know, like, a Paso, Brownsville. Like, yeah, it's. It's tough. Um, and then, when, but when you do put yourself in the migrant's shoes, like what's your alternative? Yeah. Like getting killed, just not having food. You're gonna do whatever you want, you, whatever you need to do to get to a better life. Yeah. Uh, and so. I don't think most Americans don't think either like, you know, their, their, their better life is like a minimum wage job, you know, picking fruit or working yeah. McDonald's, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not like they're coming here and become the CEO of Apple, right? Right, right. Or become, you know, they're not, coming to, they're not coming to be the CTO of Dev Match and something like that, make hundreds thousand dollars. They're like bare existence, you know, like yeah. which is, a, and it's a better life for them, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's tough.
I don't know. Like I like to say, people are way smarter and with way more money than me haven't figured it out yet. So, <laughs> well, let me just say that the CEO of Devmatch uh, is also a minimum wage job, yeah. right? right yeah. now. <laughs> for now, yeah. For now, yeah. For now, yeah. Uh, so, were you born in Texas or Mexico? I was born in Mexico. Okay. Uh, but I did go to elementary school when I was. Uh, I did elementary in Houston, Texas okay. in fifth, uh, fourth and fifth year grade. Okay. And then I went back to Mexico and then I came back for some high school in Houston as okay. well. Then I finished my school and then I came to the, to Seattle. It was great for like, so the US, the, the US in Houston, right? You go back to Mexico, you go back to Mexico, your friends like, oh, you're a fucking gringo Mexican, you're mm -hmm. Texan, you know, they make fun of you for that or? No, not really. I don't recall that. Uh, maybe because my, my very first like, five six years were in mexico mm. i didn't stand out that much okay. like because uh, i know there's a lot of um chicanos what they call uh, that's what yeah yeah yeah, yeah i haven't heard that term in a long time i'm from texas too yeah that's heard right that, heard that term in a long time you can tell a chicano in mexico yeah. but i i think i uh i don't know i i just nobody really noticed yeah. that that so why did you decide to move to Seattle of all the different places? Because I was offered a job at okay. Microsoft. That's, a, that's yeah. a good reason. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good reason to move somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a it was a great opportunity. So what got you interested in software development, coding, and all that kind of tech stuff? I think it must have come from my uncle. Uh, my uncle uh, David, he was a programmer. He's like ten years older than me, and he was taking care of me. And I mean, what? I was maybe eight years old and he, the thing that he asked me to do, like kind of to pass the time was to program code. So we had a computer. And how old were you when you started? Eight, eight, eight years old. Yeah. And so one thing, like, of course, schools get a lot of criticism, a lot of other things. One of my criticisms, like they don't start teaching code, like maybe junior, senior high school, right? Mm -hmm. Like how do, how, how can we influence like schools to start doing this like, like elementary school? Like, cause coding is like a, something everyone needs to know. That's just right. people kind of right. Like, why do you think there's such a disconnect there? Well, it's uh, relatively new um, in terms of other kind of professions, like, uh, I don't know, doctors or uh, lawyers, all that stuff. Um, but, uh, uh, a career, a successful career in computers, uh, something that is relatively new, I think. So maybe that will happen. And certainly we're seeing some of that. Like uh, when you have a career in computers, uh, you're, it's usually good paid. And I think that's going to reflect the, the school's uh, curriculum. Uh, but exactly what you're saying is uh, something that I've been advocating for a long time. Like uh, telling a computer what to do is something that is kind of Lit, like technical literacy is important, whether you are an attorney, a doctor, a farmer, anything, there's always benefit from knowing what computers can help you do um, and how to use them to your benefit. So that means just kind of teaching computer science earlier in your education. From your time doing all this kind of tech stuff, are some people like more inclined to be successful software developers that need like, certain characteristics they need or not need? Maybe 10 years ago, I would have said yes, uh, but today I don't think so. Um, I think you mostly need to be able or you need to enjoy solving problems or being able to kind of focus. I think that's a critical 
um, aspect of this. Not necessarily, not all software, not all great software engineers are exactly the same. Um, as I progress and I meet more software engineers, there are many, there's a wide range of software engineers. Like there's this person that is incredibly hardcore and can diagnose the most incredible problems uh, at the micro level, at the systems level. Then there's the fantastic software engineer that is also a salesperson, like somebody that can sell the, the, the engineer, but they're also a software engineer. They can, and they end up not selling sort of, um, products, but ideas or convincing people to do things in some way. Like, I think we should do this architecture and um, people don't agree. Well, now you have to kind of convince them or sell to them that this is how it should be done. So it, it's a wide range. Uh, it's no longer the person that is kind of all night in their computer, just kind of hacking something, um, which what I, it's what I thought a great engineer was. And but nowadays, no, it's, it, there's a wide range of skills uh, that you can use to become a great software engineer. Yeah, one thing I like about it is that anyone can do it, right? Because I, I used to follow this guy on YouTube. I think I still follow him, right? Like he was like seven years old. He, like, he just posted on YouTube, I know what I'm doing. I want to learn how to do Python, mm -hmm. right? He would post videos every day if you want to Python, right? And eventually yeah. like post some great stuff. Like, man, this is fucking cool as shit, right? This guy, seven years old, retired. He wants to do something. He, says he, learned, he taught himself Python using youtube and you document all the on, on it's like that that's yeah that, that goes like 10 years ago when i was i was describing what i thought a great software engineer was a friend of mine told me that uh great software engineers are kind of hard to find and that he told me this if you're not a gr if you're not a great programmer you're never gonna be yeah because it you can learn it yourself. You can push yourself. You can do it yourself. And, and, and there's so many resources. And then just a lot of it is just kind of almost talking to yourself and just kind of working till you succeed to a problem. Um, I thought it was very much true when he said that to me. Nowadays, I, I'm not sure. I think a lot of this stuff can be taught. Another thing that I heard uh, recently, for instance, is that only 0.05% of the world population know how to code. I'm, not, I'm surprised it's that high, to be honest with you. And we live in a digital world. Mm -hmm. We live in a world where only 0.05% of the world population can create. So imagine if we lived in a world where only 0.05% uh, of the people knew how to read and write. Or, yeah. And so now with all the technology advancing um, and allowing people to be able to create software, um, that 0 0.05 is going to grow. So it's, it's going to, it's, it's only going to make it better, I think, because uh, more ideas are going to be translated into programs. Yeah. So. And as 0.05 of code, you know, like how them are actually good coders, right? Like yeah. It's, it's probably even lower. Like, you know, anyone can like, you know, do basic code, I guess, you know, but how I many actually like, you know, like build stuff and like, you know, actually much, like, you know, much smaller than that. So I actually, and that's I, why those people get the big, big bucks. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, when I heard this quote, I dove into doing some research, seeing if I could trace the source of this 0.05% and yeah. what it means. How do you count somebody? Uh, and I couldn't find it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, there's some uh, pages there that do have this number, but I'm still yet to find yeah. uh, the true meaning of this number, but it's still, the point I think is still correct that there's very, very, very few individuals that know how to code. Here's one for you. So supposedly like, let's suppose like, suppose I, 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 I've never played a guitar 
I say I want to guitar, but I spend one hour, just one hour a week or one year practicing guitar. After that one year with only one hour a week, I'm better than 95% of the people in the world at mm-hmm. guitar, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a high barrier to become like top 5% in anything, yeah. right? So That's right. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Most of what you need is the ability to... Um, Focus first. You need some sort of incentive, like an incentive mm-hmm. of to do something, to do anything. You need to be incentivized to do that thing. Um, maybe it's an extrinsic thing. Oh, I'm gonna get paid, yeah. or maybe it's an intrinsic thing. Oh, I'm gonna feel good after I do this. Uh, but you need to have that. Uh, and then because and then the next step is just kind of learning and yeah. then being able to kind of focus and kind of think through problems and kind of uh, remember and. Yeah, just kind of. Yeah. So I could be wrong, but this what's your advice on this? Advice? Like most, like coding academies or boot camps for kids, be or anyone, or you know, they'll tell a brand new developer, like, you know, or someone wants to learn coding, like learn HTML, CSS, and C first, right? Or Javaverse. So they do that, so just like jump straight to the Python or something like that. Mm-hmm. What do you think they should do? Well, I think the software engineering kind of industry is very broad. I think they are tackling what is most um, probable that is going to give you a job right after this coding academy ends. And the more jobs, I mean, there's a ton of web development jobs out there. And now there's a ton of also kind of data science jobs out there. So they're going to teach you Python for the data development, or for the data science. They're going to teach you HTML for your web development. Um, so I think for them, it's just kind of, it's, it's not it's not like, how can we create uh, the most well-rounded, amazing software engineer? It's like, what can we teach you right now that's going to get you a job? Yeah tomorrow that's it to you know say hey this is the reason we you paid fifty seven thousand dollars for the 60 course we're going to get your job right afterwards yeah yeah absolutely so i think their decision making around their curriculum yes it is rounded well i cannot speak for any coding academy but it, this is what i think um it is mostly it's a business it's a business and and yes you're improving someone's life but at the end of the day you're you got to pay the bills you, right you have to pay the bills and uh, the way to improve their life is to get them a job so how are you how are you most likely to get them a job well you teach them the skills that are on demand so so next talk about your love of teaching and what you're doing i think it's called the dub developers oh yeah talk about that real fast yeah so i think Mostly it started when I was in university. I was uh, I co-founded a computer club and I was very much passionate about um, sharing and just kind of what, yeah, just kind of sharing. And I created uh, with some friends the computer club, which was amazing. And then that's where I learned that, hey, like sitting down with people, it takes a long time uh, when they have an issue with their coach. And there's no way. And when we launched this, we came with like 40, 50 people and we were doing workshops and all that stuff. And I said, well, what if I create a software that just basically gives you the problem and then anybody can solve it? And the the software will tell you if it's right or if it's not um, yet there. And so that was the beginning of what uh, a software that I uh, created called Teddy, which is actually still... I don't know if we're showing this. This is it. 
Okay. So this is the software that I created when it was, I was in university and it's basically uh, an online judge and it helps you. It has a bunch of problems and then people just basically go through the problems and create a, um, a solution. So here's a problem just says add two numbers and then you would write the code and put it in here and then submit the solution. And anyways, very, very much passionate about uh, computer science education. And then when I went into my master's, I was looking for places where I could do the same. And I found this developers uh, club that was teaching uh, web development skills to other students. And so I just offered myself as an instructor. Yeah, but how, how many hours per week do you spend on this? Well, that was only when I was uh, doing my master's. So you're not doing it right now? I am not doing it. Okay. Because it's right. mostly students. It's okay. students instructing students. Okay. So when I was a student, I was able to participate and then I graduated. But it was uh, maybe two hours per week. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're a startup founder now. You have your own startup. But yet you got your master's in entrepreneurship from University of Washington, right? Yes. Some people would say like, it's like an oxymoron to go to school to learn entrepreneurship, right? Yes. Like, what do you did you actually what did you actually get out of the, the, this master's degree? That yeah. You out? Before I did the master's in science and entrepreneurship, I did an MBA, and the MBA I went into the MBA. It was even worse. Some people would say to go into an MBA to because if you want to do entrepreneurship, but nonetheless, I was uh, I was very intrigued in this MBA because it was all about leadership. It was uh, focused on leadership. And prior to entering this MBA, I had already founded a nonprofit. And the challenges, my biggest challenges, were not in the technical space, were not in the project management space, were in the people space. And I said, well, uh, leading people is really hard. Convincing people to go into a, uh, have a, like, let's say we all have a vision. We all want to go in the same direction, but we all have very different opinions on how to get there. And that's really, really challenging. And that's why I, I was attracted to the MBA in the first place. And when the MBA finished, I, I was just like incomplete. Like, you know, it was just like, this is amazing. Was it your incomplete or you're just a glutton for punishment? Uh, what's that? A glutton for punishment. Uh, Got one master. Let me go get another one. No, 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 no. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I I knew from the second, like many years ago, I knew that I wanted to do uh, startups and I didn't call it startups. I just kind of set my own business. Uh, and I knew that what I had seen in that MBA was really, really good in terms of corporate uh, like corporations, large corporations and leadership that, which is what I got in there for, which is amazing. But I was still lacking all the kind of resources for launching a business from scratch. So I looked and I said, well, what, what else can I do? And I, in the, in the meantime, I, I sort of started another startup, which is not public uh, anywhere. It's called WeGo. And it was all about, um, compostable commerce or like headless commerce. So basically um, it's a tech startup, right? So I was doing this work and I said, like many tech founders think, um, this is an amazing idea and I'm gonna create it and people are gonna realize that this is an amazing idea and everybody's gonna come and where everybody's gonna be happy. But that didn't happen. Uh, nobody, the moment when we closed doors for that startup, uh, nobody cared, absolutely nobody. Because I had spent very little time speaking with customers, speaking with, I was so focused on the technology 
are very, very focused on the coding, on the infrastructure. It was amazing. Like it was really, really, really something special for me as, as it was my previous startup. Like the technology aspect is, is something that really fascinates me. But I wasn't really running a business. It was like a side project. So with that experience, um, I said, okay, where, what, uh, what other options do I have uh, for learning? Okay, I know a little bit more about leadership, but I still need fundamental business skills for starting. And that's what this master's was. Uh, and in, during the interviews, yes, they tell me there's going to be a lot of overlap between your MBA and this program, because it's essentially an MBA focused on your own startup. And... I said, it doesn't matter, you know, it's it's quite different from my perspective because I already went through an MBA and I already know that I didn't get what I needed uh, for this. So I still want to do it. And, and then I went ahead and did it and poof, everything changed. Like I met so many amazing people, like the startup ecosystem at UW is mind blowing. It really, really changed everything. And it really taught me that even though we were seeing the same things in finance, in marketing, in product management, like all the projects are your own startup. So you immediately put it to practice. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating because it's different than just kind of learning something in theory and then just kind of translating how does this look in your own startup. And there's like so many business competitions. There's so many clubs by students uh, to help you either pitch or just hackathons that help you build products. And the networking was also phenomenal. Uh, a lot of the instructors were like either investors or they know a lot about the theoretical aspects of um, entrepreneurship. And it was just like fascinating. And it was just sort of inspiring to see. And everybody around you is doing the exact same thing. It is very, very different. So from my MBA, I probably was the one, no, either the only one, my class was very small, like 20. Um, but I was the only one like really, really was ready to jump into startups. But over here, everybody's doing the same thing. And that's kind of different. And the classes were like also very, very meaningful. Th things that I still use to this day. Um, so throughout the MBA and the master's, I, I try to kind of save all the like all the worksheets, all the all the materials, because right now it's not used, but it will be used at some point. And so I bring that. So, for instance, when I was doing interview, when when people were interviewing for the uh, position, uh, deathmatch, they surprised me asking me, "What's the culture at deathmatch?" I was like, "Oh, I don't know." Uh, and I just kind of answered something, but it really got me thinking: What is the culture at deathmatch? And so I went back into all those kind of workshops and and presentations that I was given, both in the MBA and in the Master's of Science, and it gave me a, it gives you a very good framework. It's you're not starting from scratch, so I would say it was it was really good. Okay, so a couple of questions like. Is there a set number in the entrepreneurship program each year? Like only 10 people get in or 20 people get in? The classes are around 25 to 30. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's a one-year program? It is a one-year program. At the, at the one-year program, like what percentage are still like doing the startup? I would say it's the minority. Um, that people learn is not for them or what are the case they be? There's many reasons. Yeah, I would say I personally think that... Uh, there's like, I want to be an entrepreneur and there's the, I want to, I have this idea. Yeah. And so when you have just one idea and then we all know that most ideas are not business, um, like 
viable businesses. So when you realize that, that's it, because you only care about this one idea. But if you really cared about the entrepreneurial journey, those are the people that continue for too long, maybe. But like, yeah. the <laughs> they're definitely yeah. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, that's a good case. Like, um, like on one hand, you have people in the startup community say, you know, within nine days, you don't have like a product market fit, MVP, a million dollars MRR. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what are you doing? Quit right. Other hand, people say, well. I don't care if you spent 10 years, you have no product, keep on going, right? Yeah. It has to be somewhere in between, I think, right? Absolutely. Um, another great thing about being in the Masters of Science and Entrepreneurship, again, is the ecosystem, one of those uh, being the startup hall space. That's another place where there's a ton of um, kind of founders doing the same thing that you are. And you see people that have been doing this for a very long time. Some people that are just kind of, oh, I had this idea, let me try it. And so... Um, I don't think there's a way or like a, yeah, like a path, a set path to being an entrepreneur. There's definitely best practices, uh, but I think you you are on your own journey, and maybe you enjoy the 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 process, and maybe it's going to take longer for you. I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, it's it's been a year and a half since Deathmatch started, and. I really I enjoy a ton of the aspects of creating the company. If I were, on the other hand, obsessed with the outcome, would it have been taking me that long? Mm -hmm. Because I don't care about the project. Like, just take the shortcut, do this thing. Let's get to 100 customers. Yeah. Whereas another person might say, oh, let's think really hard about how we're going to hire and let's do this architecture The long-term implications of yeah. our decisions. And so be why? Because you enjoy that, uh, maybe. Or because you that's the way that you were being taught how to do something. So... Um, as, as many things, it's very complicated, but it is a combination of a sense of urgency and enjoying the process. I think those are the... Yeah, there's many ways to success. Like what works for you might not work for me, might not work for anyone Absolutely. else, you know? Yeah. Uh, next, let's talk about hiring, right? So I went to one of you, I said on one of your meetings, right? You have a pretty diverse team, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty diverse, right? Having said that, some are probably see that same group of people say you're not diverse, right? Because diverse means different things, different things. Correct. Um, like I believe diverse hiring is important, but you should always hire the best person. Like, like some, like I believe hire the best person. If you find the best person across all demographics, right? I mean, it's about the same. So, what was your approach to hiring? You know, and doing that, and bring on another thing too. Like people say, like first, like talk about leadership. Like you have to convince someone, like basically, work for free or like you know, less money than somewhere else. You have to start up, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's not easy to do. And then, like I always say, like diverse hiring is, is good, but like it's not easy, right? You, you have to get, like close. You can't say I'm gonna hire an Asian female from Vietnam, right? Yeah. First, they have to want to work for you, you know. Yeah. You know, and if first they you know have to do the job, right? So can you talk about like break that down a little bit? Absolutely. And I'm uh, I'm gonna start with something that happened to me that kind of formed a lot of my this. Well, I don't know if it formed it, but like. I still remember it. So uh, I had already stepped down from being the CEO at Omega Up, which is a nonprofit. And I felt that I had some experience in my hands uh, being a CEO. So I went to a, uh, an incubator that was incubating nothing but uh, nonprofits in Seattle. And I met with the, with this guy and with they were hosting a round table because they were looking for CEOs. And I came the, to the to the table thinking that I had a shot at w running one of the businesses. And 
the one of, at some point, this person that was kind of the owner of the incubator told us, uh, I'm only going to hire a woman for this thing. I don't care if I get sued. I don't care. No, no, no. I'm only going to hire a woman for this CEO role. And I thought about it. And I, another very interesting thing happened there. Uh, when the meeting finished, uh, somebody, we, we were offered uh, mugs for coffee and then everybody uh, left the office. I left my mug in the <laughs> in the table, uh, when, whereas other people kind of took their mug and to the kitchen area where we had originally taken it. Uh, so I, I learned a lot about in that meeting. Uh, and then I was thinking, I was, I was on my way home, I was reflecting about that, uh, what that felt that I thought I had experience in being a CEO. I thought I had experience in the education, nonprofit, like it seemed like a good fit. And yet uh, this person is saying, no, I'm not going to hire you because you're not a woman. And I said, okay, I mean, uh, I see where you're coming from. You want to diversify your team or, may, or maybe it makes sense for, for um, this person to be a female. Uh, but it, re, it, it, re, it was, that's something that I had never experienced, never, ever. And it just led me to think that, well, this is something that happens to other people all the time, all the time. Maybe they're blunt like that. Maybe they're not so blunt. Um, but it really kind of, I was just like surprised that why are you not even considering me? Like, what if I have something to show? What if I um, actually have some experience? Like, none of that matters just because something that I cannot control. That kind of um, was something that happened to me. Um, I didn't get the job. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get the job. Um, and then and then I started doing my own startups. At, at that point, I had already been at Omega Lab and I had I'd done a bunch of hiring uh, at a nonprofit, which is tough because um, you have to convince them to do something for very, very cheap uh, for something that is not meaningful in economical sense. Mm -hmm. It is just, you're just going to change someone's life. So anyways, that, that was tough. Uh, but I do remember one time, uh, I w I, again, when I was doing, in my MBA, I went to a computer club, the ACM computer club at Yuda Battle. And it was, that was amazing because I was always trying to get myself into, in front of like computer clubs. I like them. And I went to this pizza party and there was this uh, young lady there and she was kind of just, with her, with a friend, just kind of talking about stuff, and I started pitching. Well, I didn't think. What did I say? I said something like, uh, "I want you to work for me," or something like that. Uh, I want to, I want to, I want to bring you into this project. She's like, yeah, "Okay," but reluctant. And then when we started working on this thing, I don't think she had experience like uh, with software engineering, and then. We spent an evening, like four or five hours, no, like four hours, just uh, walking through the process of creating a pull request. This is how you do it. This is how you make the change. Creating a pull request is your way of telling the team that you're done with this change and that you want to contribute it to the main base of the code. And that's how you do it. So now that you've done it, I want you to take this other bug and fix it and then create a pull request and tomorrow or like the next day you tell me when you're done and then i turn off my computer 
And then the, the morning, during that morning, uh, well, I went to sleep because it was late. And then I, I woke up and then I opened my computer. And the first thing I see is a pull request from her. And she had spent, she got continued going. And then she fixed the bug. And she didn't only fix the bug. She fixed it in other places where that thing was uh, also So she happening. was like above and beyond what you're expecting. I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is great. This is fantastic. And she... Uh, develop most of that startup that I was uh, working on that, that time. Yeah. So I don't know, uh, but I remember that very vividly because I said, well, people, there's really good people out there that really want to do things and that really care and that really want to kind of, this is just kind of for them. Yeah. Uh, so how do you find them? How do you, and that's kind of the one, one of the big aspects of Deathmatch, uh, which leads me to a very similar experience with the newest, which you, who you met, uh, software engineer in the team. Uh, we use Deathmatch for hiring her. Um, and she's a freshman. I didn't know she was a freshman. I didn't, Honestly, I didn't really go in depth with the resumes. Mm -hmm. uh, I just gave them the death match assessment. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of resumes either, to be honest with you. And we started doing the final rounds of interviews. And then I was kind of certain who I was going to hire. And then I think this engineer was the, the last one. Um, and she fixes the code in front of me, blah, blah, blah. And then starts using keyboard shortcuts that I didn't even know on VS Code. Uh -huh. And I was like, wait, wait, how did you do that? Yeah. And I was like, boom, immediately. And then we were uh, having a lunch with the team. And then she, somebody asked her, where, what year are you in? And she's like, oh, I'm a freshman. You're like, you're mind what? blown. Like, <laughs> and then I went and looked at the resume and she had no prior experience yeah. in software engineering. Uh -huh. And so I guess my point is that even though everything I do uh, or I ended up doing in software, like in my career, kind of helps uh, diversity and inclusion and just kind of giving opportunity to people, I don't obsess about it mm -hmm. when, yeah. when, when I'm doing it. Um, I just create a process that is uh, fair. Mm -hmm. And so far, it's been almost automatic yeah. that the diversity is coming into the team. Yeah, I agree with you. That's a good story. Um, talk about your nonprofit Omega. That's not going on anymore, right? It is going on. It's still going yeah, on. Okay, talk yeah, about yeah. that. Omega Up is this. Um, this is Omega Up. Um, it all started with that original online judge that I created a long time ago. Because of this, I was uh, contacted by uh, two now friends about creating the same thing, but for Mexico. And that sounded great because we all use, we all did competitive uh, competitions using very archaic software that was very, very old and blah, blah, blah. And we all wanted to run computer clubs in our schools, computer competitions, uh, coding competitions and all that stuff. So we just, uh, so we launched into creating Omega Up. And Omega Up is just basically what I described the other day, which is a platform that has a ton of problems and it allows people to select a problem and then just kind of solve it. And then the, the software, the judge kind of tells you what is the, uh, if it's correct or not. And this is something you, you built? Yes, yes, with, with them. Um, and so we had we had very very insanely talented people uh, as part of the Omega Up team, and at some point we all got hired uh, 
Well, when we started, it was just the three of us, and then we all got hired by Microsoft at the same time, pretty much. So we all came to the to Redmond to start working full time, and then we realized, hey, it's a long, it's a lot of work to have your own stuff, uh, your own full time employment, plus doing this Omega Up thing, and so we decided to create a nonprofit, and so that is the Omega Up. Um, Nonprofit that we have that we see here, and the nonprofit is mostly about the non-technical aspects of teaching computer and science. Uh, so maybe um, bringing a mentor to a class, bringing uh, that sense sense of um, comp competition to to the classroom. And then Omega Ops started getting a lot of kind of attention. And then it went into middle school and then it went to, into elementary. And I went to Mexico to meet with the uh, professors and they were telling me, Alan, you have no idea what this is. I mean, I have kids in elementary that would rather stay inside during recess solving problems for, for Omega Up instead of going out there. So that, that was, that was kind of... It's still going on. What do you see the future of this being? Where well, do you see I, this going? I think the idea, one of the biggest ideas that we had for Omega when I was there is that right now, large tech companies source talent from Latin America and they bring them, they fly, they go out there, do the interviews and then bring them, pay them uh, moving expenses and they treat you very well. And they give you this massive salary and all that stuff because it's cheaper. It's cheaper to do that than to say, put headquarters on a Latin American country. So we were saying, because the, the selected talent was not that much, the people that you wanted to bring. So what we were saying, what if we provide the infrastructure so that there's a lot of opportunities and education and all those things in Latin America, that there's so much talent that it would be cheaper for a U.S. company to go and put an office. And so you don't have to bring that talent all the way to over here, but to open an office in Latin America and have the student, well, the, the population work there and live there and spend there. So that to me is kind of one of the biggest um, things uh, that we could ever achieve with Omega Up. Okay. Um What's your take on um, hackathons? Hackathons are great. Uh, I think they're a fantastic way of um, just kind of having fun um, and just kind of meeting people and getting to um, build something. Sometimes you're always wanted to learn Python or you always wanted to do, do something with uh, AI, but you never really quite find the time. So, Hackathons are a perfect way for us to um, basically uh, kind of exercise that or experiment and all that stuff. Well, hackathons, it's supposed to work like, you know, maybe you have four people and you already know each other. You go to a hackathon. It's supposed to be like more like you go to a hackathon by yourself, meet four different people you've never met before, and then do the hackathon. Is it a preferred way or does that even No, matter? no, 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 no. A hackathon is just like a party. It's just, there's no way, there's no one way of doing it. Um, so you can just basically do it like you said, form your teams prior, and then there's a lot of structure, and then you come in, and then you 
present to the judges and all that stuff. Or you can just say, hey, there's pizza. There's a theme. Come on in and do it yourself. Do it with a team. Do it whatever. And then there's there's no right way. We're actually hosting a hackathon this Friday, this coming Friday. Okay. Uh, and, and we just give pizza. That's it. Yeah. So... Talk about the importance of having a good designer on your team. Mm-hmm. Like I think a lot of developers they build, they, they don't care about the, how it looks, yeah. but how it looks is very important, right? Very important. So can you talk about the importance of that? Hmm. I think a piece of software is useless. It's It's a wasted effort if it's not used. I know that. Two of my previous startups, well, my, my first two startups uh, that were like 100% technical aspects uh, didn't really achieve anything. They died. Nobody knows about them. And so why did they, why does nobody know about them? Because they don't get used. They didn't get used. And the interface, or should I say the user experience, is such a big block to allowing somebody to use something. So even if you have the most amazing piece of software and it solves a very critical problem and all that stuff, if somebody does not know how to use it or cannot use it, even if they want to, it's just kind of... it's impossible for yeah, them to use I, it. I think a lot of tech people with this get this confused. Like I think a lot of tech people. Like my thing is like, just because it's a good user experience for you doesn't mean it's a good user experience for everyone else, right? You're not building I, I, necessarily yeah. for yourself. I think a lot of people get the mess. Yeah, up. you're not building. And, and this, I, I remember this uh, from somebody that I worked at Microsoft. Um, he was saying. Oh, I wish we were working on Windows, on Windows, the operating system. And he was saying, oh, I wish Windows did this, did that. And and then he said, well, if if I were to build Windows the way I want it, uh, nobody would buy it. Yeah. Uh, because he's just not the target audience uh, for that particular thing. And so, well, he is, but like, <laughs> um, it's it targets so much, so many other individuals, right? So I think that's critical. And that is something that I emphasize. And we, and you saw this during the meeting that I invited you to DevMesh. Uh, we talked a lot about the ICP, Ideal Customer Profile. And everything, absolutely every single thing we do starts or should start with the Ideal Customer Profile. Who is this person? How much time do they spend on the computer? Like, where are they? Where do they hang out? What are their key points? What are their um, um, objectives? What are their common objections? All those things. Anyways. All this to say that that person should be able to use the software. And that's where users, user experience and design come in. And the other thing that I, I learned with the designer that we have right now at Deathmatch, uh, the difference and uh, the true difference between u- user, well, my, as I understand the difference between user experience, user interfaces and graphic design. So graphic design is just taking somebody's vision and creating some sort of visual elements that are beautiful and that really transmit the things that you want to say. And when we're in with meetings with him, we talk about um, the meaning of the colors, like the the. the, the yeah, you're right. Like 
I tell this story before, like when I first trying to design my website and stuff, I had a designer and I want blue. They're like, what blue do you want? <laughs> and, and they got all these number blues, like, what the fuck is going on here right now, right? Yeah. When, when, like, blue is blue, right? No, no, blue is not blue if you're designing like this F1279BC. Oh it's gosh. like, I was like, what in the world is happening right now? It's so big. It's, it's a, and, and Daniel, Daniel's his name. He's, um, uh, he goes very deep into this stuff. Um, uh, that's why we started creating a brand design book. And we're a pre-seed company. Like who, what pre-seed company yeah. has a, des- a but, brand book? Yeah, but it's important to have though. But I personally feel it's important mm-hmm. and it helps him do his job. It yeah. helps me kind of bring all these ideas together such that I can, because sometimes I have an, uh, like a vision of what we want to do, what I want to do, but it, how do you tr- explain that? Yeah. And sometimes I just get frustrated and I just say, you know what, just this, this is the blue. This is the blue that we need. Boom, that's it. Instead of saying, what we care is somebody that is calm. Yeah. And they make the decision. Mm-hmm. And then now they have more data points. And so for us in particular, it's very important because... When you are about to jump into an interview, you're very stressed. You're very, very stressed. Yeah. You you have one hour to do this thing. You know that you're going to be pushed. You know that uh, you, you, this is a job you want. So your stress levels are very high. When you come into the platform and the first thing that you see is a glitch or the a very archaic old UI that doesn't really, like you don't know how to do it, boom, your, your chances of demonstrating your knowledge, your skills go down. Not because you don't know, because the tool that you're using to demonstrate the knowledge is not good. And so the whole point of Deathmatch is that we allow you to demonstrate your, your skills and knowledge and experience through real life simulations, right? That's the whole point. It's just like a, it's a vessel that trans, like it tells this person, it tells the other person, this person can do this thing. But if in the process of doing that, we're presenting you with a broken UI or something <laughs> that is, your stress levels go up. So that's why I think that uh, UX is usually very, very, it's very important, but for us it's like massively important because uh, it's, it's it, everything is in this moment. You using this tool to demonstrate what you know. So, um, yeah. So talk about this, right? This is like, in like ex- extremes on both sides, right? So on one side, you have a tech founder, right? And all they do is product, 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 and they never like do any marketing, right? Mm-hmm. On the other side, you have a not tech founder who doesn't have a code. Yeah. So he's spending all the time marketing, 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 have nothing to sell, right? Work your relations on both those people, like kind of come in the middle, so to speak. It's really tough. Uh, the easiest way that I can think of is just get different people. Uh, just go find a co-founder that really um, understands what is being done. Uh, maybe because they are trying to do it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just now, having said that, I haven't done that because it's really tough uh, for me, at least, to. I care so much and so deeply about this. And I know about people that I would love to bring in, but I just don't feel that we're ready yet. Mm. Um, And that has slightly changed. And again, that sense of urgency. Mm. Um, And for me, it was when ChatGPT started becoming a, a massive thing. I always wanted to bring some people that I know from my past that would be very good at product when I know I'm uh, good at, I don't know, something else. 
Um, but I always waited for the right moment. And with ChatGPT coming into the picture, I said, now is the time, like right now is, this is not going to happen again. You know, and I remember I read this. I don't know if it's true or not, but like uh, when Bill Gates, uh, I think he was in school and then Paul Allen, I think, uh, grabbed a magazine with the DIY computer that was being distributed at that time. He went to him and said, this is happening without us right now. Like this revolution is happening right now and we're not part of it. Like what? Well, like, we need to be part of it. So I feel kind of similar. Like I've been wanting to do this for so long and maybe because I enjoy the process so much that it's taken me a long time. Um, but that sense of urgency is finally making me go to people that I always wanted to bring and tell them, I need you. I want you. And what are we like? This is going to happen with you or, or with, uh, with us or without us. Mm -hmm. Like somebody's going to create this platform. And to my surprise, some say, yes, yeah, this is amazing. Uh, let's, let's do something. So that's how I try to kind of find people that do things slightly different uh, than what I do. And, and the other thing is that when I collaborate with somebody that is incredibly smart and sometimes I disagree with them. So I, Sometimes I really disagree with them, like a lot. Like we, very professional, but a lot. I'm going into like fist fights yeah. with people. Um, just one time though. But, <laughs> but other times, and that was a very long time ago. But like, we, we, but that's great because we, that just means that both really, really, really care about the thing being discussed. Right. And so we move, we move on and then I reflect on what happened. And those were the moments where I learned the most. It was not by hiring somebody that is just going to tell me, oh yeah, you're great. All that, that stuff. Uh, it's mostly by hiring or not, or working with somebody that is just kind of going to challenge you. Um, so, yeah. And you, do you have a board of advisors? I do. I have two advisors right Talk now. Talk about like, like multifaceted, like, like how do you recruit them? How do you convince them to come on board? And what's the benefits of having a board of advisors? Well, um, again, the first one I met through the UDAF uh, startup community, we were a part of a program called iCorps that teaches you uh, customer development. And he was just there to listen to our presentation. And I just felt that he sort of, he really understood what we were doing. And I just asked for another meeting. And then he kind of went over all of his, um, kind of his background, how he can help. And I think the most important thing that really told me that, okay, this guy needs to be an advisor is, uh, I was really afraid. I was really scared, uh, during the meeting, the, one of the initial meetings, um, I felt like I was presenting to, like he was asking me like all these very, very tough questions. Why are you doing this? Why are you not doing this? Like, who's your customer? Like, well, it sounds very obvious right now, but like, you're just this attempt at a business. And then somebody comes in and just asks you all these questions, like boom, 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 boom. And I, and I felt like this is the right pressure that I need right now. It's going to give me a lot of sense of urgency instead of just like, oh, I have this vision of something that needs to happen. And 
I'm going to make it there somehow. No, I need somebody to ask me all the basic fundamental questions and it's just kind of waiting for the answer. And if I say something that doesn't make sense, they're going to tell me. So that's when I uh, decided, okay, this person, I think they they really understand what we're doing and they're, ma they're making me think. That was the first advisor that we got. Like, how do you do, utilize that? Like, you do weekly meetings for them, monthly meetings? I used to work? have monthly, no, uh, weekly meetings, I think. Uh, that, was, that, that was the advisor number one. Advisor number two is an actual recruiter. I mean, we do a ton of, like, we're not a recruiting company, but everything we do right now is just kind of around recruiting. We're just a tool inside the recruiting pipeline. Um, and this guy was an actual recruiter that actually taught us how to recruiters think about stuff. And yes, I did set up meetings every week with them. Just I would go ahead and present to them. And then I also realized that I needed more time to present more meaningful things. Mm -hmm. So right now we're just meeting on a as needed basis. Okay. Um, next, talk about the thing is called the Jones Foster Accelerator. Yes. Is that something like y'all like just completed or what is that? We The Jones Foster uh, Accelerator is... Um, is an accelerator um, by the um, Foster School of Business. And they give you six advisors mm -hmm. and over the long, over the, it's I think six months, six months or a year. I don't know, um, but it's it's around that. It's a, it's a long thing. I think it's six months. And over the course of six months, you meet with them, you set up your objectives. This is what I want to achieve. You work your objectives with these with the advisors who are coming from many different areas. Maybe somebody, we had an attorney, somebody that was um, into software and many, many different things, areas. And so we come together, we create the objectives and then we work towards those objectives. And at the very end, you present to the entire group and you're doing this alongside other five startups. And then at the end you present, and if you, if you accomplish most of your objectives or to their kind of verdict, uh, they decide that yes, you worked towards your objectives, whether you actually completed every single one of them or not, uh, then you get a, a grant, okay. 25,000. Okay, and do you have to give any equity for this? No, Okay. no, which is great. So you talked about this summer already, but can you talk more about the UW startup ecosystem? Yeah. So the first time I, um, I mean, it's really, really broad. There's there's classes. There's, of course, the Master's of Science in Entrepreneurship. There's the Berg Center for Entrepreneurship. And then outside of that, there's so many kind of clubs, like student-led efforts to, that help entrepreneurship. And- No, no, no peer pressure. All right, thank you. <laughs> Um, and there's also one of the biggest ones, uh, it's a class, um, that is, uh, I think when I was originally, actually this class was what re was 40% of why I applied to the masters of science and entrepreneurship. And it's not even in the curriculum. It's a called, uh, called startup entrepreneurship. Uh, and it's taught by, uh, Greg Gottsman and Ed Latsowska. Um, and they both they mix the class with MBAs, computer science, and I always forget this acronym HDCI, Human Centered Design. Yeah, I know and you're talking about. I know yeah. that I heard. Yeah, I know you're talking about. Yeah. I think it's HDCI, something like that. And so they build teams of three 
uh, I'm sorry, of the three uh, kind of categories. And then they, of course, kind of build a startup. So that was amazing because um, uh, Greg Gottsman's a very famous uh, entrepreneur. He was the co-founder or founder of Rover. Um, I mean, Madrona, so many long, long, um, long career. And right now he runs Pioneer Square Labs. Okay. All right. And Ed Lasowska um, is a very distinguished computer scientist. And the thing that I remember the most is that he was on the, so in computer, in computer science, there's this very, very, very important award called the Turing Award. Okay. And uh, it is kind of the Nobel Prize of computer science. And he was in the committee for some years uh, determining who gets to get that award. Uh, and, and incredibly kind of human and just kind of down to earth and just kind of easy to talk to. And anyways, um, classes like that, um, where you bring, and one of the, actually one of the, um, the guest speakers was Andy Jassy, the CEO okay. of Amazon. Okay. So that caliber of um, uh, guests we had. Um, so there, there was that, uh, there were the, all the startup competitions um, where I met a ton of teammates. There was, of course, the, the Masters, the Johns Foster, the Dempsey startup competition. I mean, it's just all over the place. Startup Hall. How many years have you been involved with the UW startup scene? I mean, since I started there. Uh, when, even though my MBA was at uh, University of Washington Bothell, um, I didn't really feel part of the university. Mm -hmm. um, number one, the classes were in a, it, they were not on campus. They were on a separate um, facility that they have. And it was just like, um, classroom in the middle of a business campus. So that's it. Uh, but when I went into the Seattle campus, when I started the Masters of Science in Entrepreneur, that was completely different. Like you're like more of a community, so it, to speak. It, it is entirely a community. And it was also full time. On my MBA, I was going in the evenings. Yeah, that's a big difference. It is a massive difference. So even though I was already kind of sort of part of the UW community, uh, it was a massive difference going full time to university. Like you're immersing yourself into this thing full time. Like you're an extra student versus Absolutely. You know. That's definitely how it, how it felt. Yeah. So next, talk about um how about this question like from your point of view, how does the UW startup C system integrate with the total overall Seattle startup scene? There's a, a good chunk of um Con connections being made. And so what I will say is that, for instance, uh, there is a fund, not a fund, uh, a VC called Pack Ventures that is exclusively focused on startups that have a tie to UW mm -hmm. in some way. It does, you know, you don't have to be a student, uh, maybe you're a professor or in some ways tied to UW. And so by virtue of having all these events, so Dempsey Startup Competition and Johns Foster and all that stuff, those things need mentors and they need judges so that they bring people from the industry. And that is how I've met Atan. I mean, that's how I met my one of my advisors. Uh, a bunch of investors I've spoken to are just people that these um, programs bring and then introduce us to. So for instance, upcoming, we have, um, um, uh, investor roundtable where they're going to pick a bunch of startups and then they're going to bring a bunch of um, investors and then they're just going to talk. Are you, are you talking about the speed dating thing? Yeah, that's, doing yeah, yeah, that's going to happen sometime soon. 
Yeah, yeah, I applauded that. So like, I didn't know it was gonna be this big deal. Uh, yeah. I, I would have. I got an email from um, I think Sarah Sudo said like eighty yeah. startups apply for thirty spots. So, yeah, we'll see. Exactly. Um, and you recently pitched at Founders Live, correct? I did. So, talk about we're talking about Founders Live in a minute, but talk about the points of putting yourself out there as a founder, like putting your idea out in the public and getting like I won't say destroyed, but uh, getting like maybe negative feedback on your idea, so to speak. How you need to put yourself out there? Yeah. Um, it's very typical um, to go out there and then just kind of um, explain your idea. And people, I will sometimes see that they're like, oh, that's great. When in reality, I absolutely know that they're like, no, this is never going to happen. Or like, you're not the right person or like something like that. Yeah, as a founder, you definitely got to learn how to, you know, say what somebody's really saying, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, this is the best idea ever, you know? And But you, but you can know, you just can tell, like, they're saying, like, yeah, this shit's all fucked up. Like, <laughs> get out of my face. This is like, never going to I'll, I'll, I'll never give no money. Like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. And that's tough. Uh, just so much rejection, whether it's direct or not. I've had some people just straight up tell me, no, this is, like, in the first, like, minute of the conversation, it's like, no, I've seen this before. Like, you haven't even heard me say half of what I want to say, but you're already making your decision. And it's tough. Yeah, but a quick no is always better than a delayed maybe, right? That is true. That yeah. is uh, in some ways, uh, in some cases. So if the person knows how to give you feedback, then yes, that is really good. But I guess the other part that is really good is that it helps you, like you said, put your, putting yourself out there and then just kind of helping um, getting over the anxiety of being in front of yeah. people. And the other thing I learned is that is really, it was really useful for my team Yeah, for them to see, because even, I mean, we spent, we worked on a daily basis mm -hmm. and there's still stuff that they learned when I was pitching. I know, you know, I never <laughs> thought about it like that. That's, that's, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Not only that, they see what people say about what you're doing. Right. So they're like, Oh man, they said this, they said that we never thought about that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a very good point. And, and it was, uh, they keep talking about this uh, event, uh, my team, um, because they had a good time. They got, they got together, they Final spoke with each other event, yeah. and, and they got to see what I, what is it that we're all constructing. Cause if they don't know what we're building, then like, okay, you're just, Paying me so that I can change the color of this yeah. thing. What does it really matter? You Why? Know? Why? Okay. So that means that they're not going to be incentivized to go and really fix the thing. You know, they're just doing something because I because he was in the in the in the backlog. Yeah. So first, so, cheers. Oh, no, cheers. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um. So talk about so final, those who don't know finals live finals live. Started to see out like the 2016 as first feature Friday, and Nick Hughes the CEO expanded like across the world, right? So across mm -hmm. the world, people do like pitch competitions. The difference I about is like it's 99 seconds. Yeah, and that shit is not easy, right? Like, no. talk about the difficulty, or maybe it was easy for you, like do your pitch your whole company's everything in 99 seconds. Mm -hmm. Um. As you say, it was it was definitely difficult. Here's where I really worked together with the designer, with Daniel. Um, and this I learned during during the Dempsey Startup Competition, which is kind of practice. It's just so obvious, right? Practicing, but like really practice, like really recording yourself. So for the Dempsey Startup Competition, it was very similar. 
I needed to pitch. It was not 99 seconds. But what I would do is I collected a group of people, people that I admired and that I respected. And I recorded my pitch every single night. I would work on it all day. And then at the evening, I would record it. And then I would send it to them for feedback. And I use the I, we use this tool called Loom. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Loom yeah, lets yeah. you add comments right yeah. there. And then uh, they would add feedback. And then I would spend all day next day just kind of fixing the feedback, and I would record it again. And I did that for like a week and a half or two weeks before the event. And that really energized everybody involved in this project. It energized me. It energized the, the advisors. And I did that again. And at the end of that experience, uh, I didn't win. We didn't win the Dempsey Startup Competition. Uh, but at the end, one of the advisors, when he wasn't even a real a, a proper advisor to the startup. He was just something that I really respected. And he emailed saying, hey, this thing that you're doing, you're just putting yourself out there, just kind of, you have earned my respect. And to me, that was just kind of, wow. That's the win right there. That is amazing. And another person, another one of our mentors said, I would never do this. I could never do this. So you, I commend you for doing something like this. And I took that approach to uh, John's Foster and just kind of recording myself, uh, not John's Foster, to the Founders Live. And I just kind of recorded myself over and over again. And just kind of compressing everything kind of forces you to think, what are we doing? Like, yeah. what is the one core thing? Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that I learned in that class from Greg and Ed. What is the one thing, the absolute one thing that you're better at that absolutely anybody else in the world today? Just one. What is it? That's a very good thing. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great point. And so you you need to know what that is for your startup. What is what is the one thing that you are going to be uh, the best in the world at? And go all in, just push you. And so I think it, it really helped us. Um, it really, it also helped me in that presentation. I, I was very nervous um, because I oftentimes overdo stuff. <laughs> and I remember we, we got this coach, uh, Melissa. I think. Yeah, yeah. Melissa Reeves, I think. Yes, yes. She's great. And she was very, very pleased with the work that we had done uh, for that presentation. And uh, that made me feel good. And then I went ahead and presented at the actual live. And we didn't win again. And I emailed Melissa and I said, we didn't win. What do you think we, we should be doing? Mm -hmm. And she told me that basically it's not like, it's not random, mm -hmm. but you should not kind of trust, like people vote for the slight list for, for the most small reasons, yeah. um, you know, maybe they were wearing a nice shirt or, yeah. or something, or like I saw my neighbor and they were voting for this startup. So I did it as well. Yeah. And to just kind of let it go. I know that I was obsessing about it, but she just kind of let it go and just kind of keep working on, on what you're doing. So yeah. that was, it was, it was a very nice uh, event, but more, more than any, if I can take one thing out of that, it was what it did for the team. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing I like about Fano's lab is that, it, it's not a bunch of judge, two, two, three judges, like, yeah. it's a crowd voting. And not yeah. only that, the crowd gets to ask the questions, right? So when I would pitch like last year, like you have to be ready for any type of question, yeah. right? Like you just can't, you got like, if you have three judges, you got to kind of research on LinkedIn, like this guy's a tech guy, he might ask me a tech question marketing guy. Yeah. 
like the questions you get, like they all make sense, but like sometimes I'm out of left field, right? So you got to be prepared to answer everything. Absolutely, um, you have to be very good at. Uh, it's almost like acting, or mm -hmm. it's almost like uh, thinking. I mean, it's a performance, right? It is a performance. So I remember I was going. I was at a, this presentation. And they were asking questions via the chat. It was a webinar or something like that. And somebody asked the question via chat. And the one of the organizers asked the, the, the person presenting, hey, the question is blah, blah, blah. And the presenter was like, no, I don't understand it. Do you think they mean this or, or do they mean this other thing? We don't know. Like, yeah. there's no way to ask me. No. The like, no, don't, don't know. know. Yeah. Like, you have to like really, really. Well, you know what? If you're thinking about this, then mm -hmm. it should be this. If you're thinking about this other thing, maybe it's this other thing. And I think that is also something that really helped. Um, I feel like I. Sometimes people tell me that I have. Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not not passion, but like. Energy. 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 When I'm presenting. Because mm -hmm. I get really into it. I remember when I was presenting at Founders Live, I actually apologized to one of them. Because <laughs> I was getting like aggravated. I was like, no, we need to do something, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I wait, I'm sorry. It's not it's not you. Uh, I apologize. And I think that uh, sometimes it helps you, sometimes no. Because they need to be, They some people need to know that you're in control. Yeah. So talk about, uh, I'm a big believer in this now, like the points of, Everyone like starting at a younger age doing public speaking, right? Cause yeah. I'm a big thing. Like everyone's had to sell something, right? Whether they're trying to find a job yeah. or like try to get investor money. Like the point is again in front of people and talking, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, of course, everyone's scared, right? Like I've done public speaking. I'm more, I'm more scared shitless. You know, everyone is yeah. right. But you got to get up and convince people to do your idea, right? Yeah. <sighs> I think. Um I don't know. I don't know. I, I, there's there's people that are insanely good at what they do, um, and they don't need to talk in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. But I do think that having the ability to talk in front of an audience is amazing. It's 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 really important. But I don't think everybody. Um, it's like a, it's like it's like one of those skills that you need to go through when you're developing as a as a person. Uh, so maybe it's a geography, history, math, and a public speaking. Maybe something like that. Doesn't mean that you're gonna go full on history or that you're gonna do geography for the rest of your life or that it's going to be critical. But I think it's it's important for you to go through the experience of doing it and seeing what that feels. Maybe you are really good. Uh, or maybe you realize that you will never speak in public. Like that's not for you. Uh, um, if you can develop it and that's something that you want to do, then that's fine. You can do that. Um, but I think more, more as I'm thinking about this, I think more, more I would incentivize for some level of, um, what do you call it? Uh, oh, it just escaped my mind. Like being comfortable with mm -hmm. yourself and just yeah. being confident is what I wanted to yeah. say. Confidence. I think confidence, um, will go a long way, no matter what you do. I think a lot of people in real life, when they do like do public speaking, like, you know, if you're in front of a crowd speaking or whatever subject, the people that come to automatically presume you're a subject matter expert, right? Mm. So you always have a heads up on them, right? They're not yeah. like, you know, 
Jason speaking, he don't know shit about HR, like you know, or like Alan speaking, he doesn't know shit about tech or, or recruiting or dev match, right? Like, yeah, they automatically assume you know what you're talking about, right? But of course, you may or may not convince them that you're not, you know, you know, get nervous and say stupid things, you know. So yeah, yeah, I know your your guys, your sales guy Liam got a very great presentation last time, right? It's really good. And that's why I asked, like, how many times you practice? He's like, I didn't practice. I was like, yeah, I figured it right because you just know, some people are just natural at that stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. me, I gotta rehearse a couple of times, you know. It was funny when I do it. Like whenever I like speak in front of public, like I know what I say, but I don't. I don't know what I say, right? <laughs> if that makes any sense, yeah, right? Absolutely. I get I've like, been through that. Yeah, like you know what I want to say, I don't say. You know, everyone you says I did a good job. You know, but like fuck, I, I didn't say this. I didn't say that. You can't stress over that, right? Yeah. As long as you got the idea over that you want to get expressed, I think that's what matters. <laughs> yeah, for me, it does not come naturally. Absolutely not. Unless it is a topic that I well, even when it's a topic that I care about a lot, uh, it does not come that naturally, and I have to prepare a lot. Yeah. And so, for instance, I remember one time when I was doing a conference, and I was the person that was supposed to be teaching about some aspect of Java uh, to a group of students. And I come in here with all the confidence, uh, with all the confidence that I would be able to talk about this and maybe even learning on the fly. And then in in, during the, the chat, there was a question and I didn't know. And then because somebody was able to ask that question, other person asked that question, and then I didn't know. And then somebody else answered. And so they were like, they were like taking over. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of, oh, I felt really, really, really bad. Yeah. Really, really bad. And the most recent one was when I went back to Mexico to my uh, university where I did my, my bachelor's. And I thought I was going to a classroom to talk about my experiences. And then I get there and it's like 300 people in this massive conference room space. <laughs> you're like, you're like, no one, either I missed an email or no one told me this. What is happening? And of course you have to do it. Yeah. Um, it was terrible. It was, it was really, yeah. really bad. I mean, you think about, you know, talking in front of three people, 300 people is the same thing, right? But it's not right. It is not. Well, it didn't. It's feel. different energy. Because you can see their faces. Yeah. Uh, and you can see, um, you can see that they're disagreeing. You can mm. see that they're bored. You can see when they're on their phone. You can see a, a bunch of stuff. And so anyways, that's that's why I really, really need to prepare a lot. That's why I do the recordings. That's, mm. why, that's why. And when I don't, I usually regret it. Yeah, my problem is like I tend to talk fast. So I, when I talk, I give a speech. I, I really got to focus on like slowing down, mm. right? And use my words. Come on, how my opera, my, my mind operates. Like if I'm saying the first sentence, my mind is already on, on sentence three or four, yeah. right? So subconsciously, I try to catch up to the fourth sentence, right? And so I like instead of like saying ten distinct words, like one da 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 da, da right? So I got that's what I really got to focus on. Yeah, we all have uh, to work on stuff. For me, it's just kind of need to be prepared because mm-hmm. uh, otherwise, I start talking in ways that are like not grammatically correct mm-hmm. uh, especially in english uh, because english is not my first language so i really need to prepare uh if i'm going to be doing a person so can you do this like this i think this would be pretty cool to do it i actually think it'd be pretty fun i suppose you give them a speech somewhere right mm-hmm. let's say it's an english-speaking office yeah a, a, already like you said like two minutes english two minutes spanish like going back and forth can you imagine look at people's face like what's he doing like, <laughs> Well, I I think Chicanos do a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, they mix uh, English and Spanish quite a lot, quite a lot. Uh, but of course, if the audience does the same, then there's no problem. Um, but no, I've never tried to do that. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> well, sometimes I, I will do that 
not with Spanish, but with technical speaking. Okay. Oh, wow. So yeah. even though I'm speaking English, mm -hmm. I quickly transition to something about very, very deep technical aspect that nobody understands. Mm -hmm. And I, you lose them. And so it's it's tough because you care about those things that you want. And this happens to me all the time during my team meetings. Um, I did this very, very cool core infrastructure thing. Nobody else knows about this, but I want somebody to know and to say, that's awesome. Uh, and I I will dive into the technical details and I know they don't like, they're not involved in this aspect of the project. So they don't really understand what I'm talking about. And that is something that I need to kind of go over. Like I don't, you don't need. This brings up a good point. How do you do this right? So obviously like, you know, you have like a developer, a designer, a marketer, a salesperson, like basically like one person each thing, right? So how do you make sure everything sync, right? I think like how do you make sure like you know you have a meeting with a marketer, the marketer mm -hmm. sales, right? Like how do you make sure everyone sync up in the same page? Yeah, so we follow the Scrum methodology. We have a sprint planning meeting every Monday, and then every single day we meet for fifteen minutes, nine a.m. to do a stand up, and then at the very end we have a demo, which is what you saw. So. How do we come up with the work that we do? Uh, we have uh, four priorities. Um, creating problems, having users, having customers, and having investors. And everything we do bubbles up to one of those core priorities. And um, we just basically together, we say, I want to create. Um, so for instance, the brand book. The brand book should be something that inspires the next, home, the next landing page. Mm -hmm. And so in that meeting, we decide, okay, is now the time to do the landing page? Yeah, because we have the brand book ready with the pieces. And then what about technically? Uh, is that going to impact whatever we have today? And then the engineer comes in and says, that should be fine. And so we all get together, discuss that. And of course, you come up with a massive plan and then things start shifting and that's normal. Um, but that's why we have the daily standups to say, okay, you know what, this front page work took twice what it needed to be. So now we're gonna have to push something else. How do you do this? Like, of course you're the founder, you're all in, you're like, you're consumed about this, right? But you're like, you're like I guess you have like students here, your team, people like, you know, kind of part-time, whatever the case may be. How do you make sure you don't overwhelm them, right? Like, just like give them a whole bunch of stuff to do. Like, how do you make sure like you give them like, like give them kind of some kind of balance, so to speak. You know, yeah. which at the same time, like make sure, hey, I don't, I'm not saying like there must be no more priority, but it should be like kind of up there, right? Yeah. Well, this is uh, something that we actually discussed. Um, I feel that half of the team is in, because maybe because they have other things that they need to be doing, i.e. school. Uh, they're very good at keeping track of like, I stop deathmatch, I work my other stuff. And because every day, every single day, we, we uh, reduce the capacity of uh, the, so let's say we have a website that needs to be made and it's 10 hours of work. And the person doing this needs to reduce the capacity by two hours. Everybody works two hours per day every single person and we track that and so that is i think the structure of just having that it helps them saying to think i only need to work two hours and that's it on the other case it is it is the case for the most creative work for the designer to go over and the designer also happens to be mexican you know and so i i, I that's the guy with the long hair right that is the guy with the long hair and so I have and the lady next to him, she's your developer, right? She's a front-end developer okay. and UX designer, okay. yes. And oh, I, that's pretty good. That's, yeah. 
Doing both of them? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, so that's that's kind of how the arrangement that we have. So Daniel is the uh, graphic designer as moving into user experience design. And then Catherine is the person that translates that user design Figma files into front-end designs. Mm -hmm. And then Kara is the back-end designer that can also do front-end when she And all three of them, are they all UW students? They are, are. yeah, yeah. Okay. Danielle has already graduated. Okay. Yeah, but they, I mean, we have a fantastic team uh, that is building the platform. Um, I forget where I was going before this. No worries. So two-part question. What's the culture of DevMatch right now? And is this the culture that you actually want to have for DevMatch? Culture. Yeah. Jason. <laughs> I think, I think, um, oh, I remember where I was going now. Okay. I'm going to answer that first. Okay. <laughs> uh, Daniel is also, Daniel is also um, um, Mexican. Mm -hmm. So I happen to know Mexican culture because I am Mexican myself. Yeah. And I know that in Mexico, it is very kind of common to, I don't know if this translates well, but like putting the jersey, like putting the company's t-shirts is what the, we say. Well, what we mean by that is just like, even though you're not going to maybe get paid for this, you still do the work. You work really, really hard, extra, more than you needed to uh, because you love the company. That's just something we do. Uh, and I say, well, in this case, we, we were having this conversation. In this case, Daniel, um, this is just part-time. You have to do other stuff. And in this case, putting the jersey or putting the t-shirt means stop working when you need to stop working. Like you're not, you're not going to get paid more. Um, we're, we're still going to be here, hopefully. And so I guess just having... I could take advantage of that, of the fact that he's so into the creative work that he spends way more time. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important to just say, no, I mean, do what you can with the time that we have allotted. And then, because we also want to learn how long it takes you realistically to do something so that we can better prioritize later. Yeah. So this hopefully doesn't sound too bad. I was about to say, I probably will be like, so I never knew what you just said. And so I know a lot of people say like, I want to hire a Mexican worker to do whatever, right? Is that part of that? Like, you know, cause Mexican workers, Mexican is known for being great workers, right? Is that part of the, that where that comes from? Maybe. <laughs> um, I do think that uh, Mexicans in general, I saw studies sometime that they work the most hours, mm -hmm. uh, office hours. Uh, than some of the other nationalities more yeah. than, more than the U S for instance. And I can see that, uh, I can see that, uh, Part of it is that culture that you have to work really, really hard to demonstrate that you really, really care about the company. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't know. Maybe because you don't want to lose your job. Yeah. Maybe because you want to get promoted. Um, but that's just something that is set. Yeah. About. I know, like, I know, like, I tell people a lot of time, like, you know, kind of what you just said, like, being dedicated to the company. Like, you know, a lot of people that have jobs, right, and the job sucks, right? And like they don't want to move on. Well, I tell people like you know, to, you know, try to try to find a real job. While we you're there, try to get value from that job, right? Like try to learn a new skill. Try to learn a lesson from there, right? Like there's yeah. always something to be said for doing a good job, right? But learn something, right? I'm not saying stay in a fucked up job and like get taken advantage, but like yeah. you know, you're not gonna go from one job to Monday to Tuesday, right? It, it takes a while to find a job. While you're there, you know, I don't want to say suck it up, but like suck it up, learn some skills, like take advantage as much as you can, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean I'm going through this transition right now myself. Like uh, I'm going through this uh, entrepreneurship journey and I'm working really hard, mm -hmm. but like, am I sacrificing other stuff? Probably. Yeah. So where's the line between making this thing succeed? Do you even need to take it there? If you were, if you were, were making smarter choices, would you need to take this much time to get where you need to go? Yeah. So that's kind of some things, some, something that I really think about. And what people have realized, people say, no, I'll be an entrepreneur. People think, you know, I'll, you know, that's how I'm not right. Like you never know what's coming up. Like you might have a personal emergency, you know, like, yeah. you know, some of your family might get sick, you know, you're like, okay, I'm like, I'll make this up. I have a hundred thousand dollars savings. I'm put all in my business. Yeah. Well, your, your kid might have surgery. Oh shit. I got to pay $75 for surgery. Right. Or I got to pay for this. You never know what comes up. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, that happens to all of us. It can happen to the person and, and you need to understand that. And, and another thing that I also understand that I also learned from the masters of science, uh, a, a person that I was, uh, work not working with, but uh, another student there told me some said something that was interesting to me. I always wanted to work with people that cared about what I do as even as much as I do. Like we want people that really absolutely obsess about technical recruitment and and coding and engineering and stuff. And I need people that really obs and and then she comes in and says. And she says, no, not everybody's going to care about everything. Not everybody's going to care about your startup. That's your startup. Yeah. They just want to get paid. And you need to accept that. And I said, hmm, that sounds true. Yeah. Sometimes I, when I was working at Microsoft, I was working on things that I didn't really care about. I don't really care about this, but I'm going to do it. And I expect to get compensated, but don't expect me to fall in love with this thing. Yeah. And so there, there was a post on Quora a long time ago where this guy put on the on the Quora like, you know, how do I convince my employees to be his dedicated and focus on me? I don't get why they're not you know, all in right. And then of course he got blasted, right? Mm. And if somebody basically said to say, it doesn't matter if you gave an employee ninety five percent of the company, they will start not being as engaged as you. Yeah. It's your company. Yeah. Pay with worth and leave it at that. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the reasons uh, why when we started, it was mostly, actually exclusively unpaid labor. Mm. Um, it was unpaid internships for everybody. Mm. And then as we were making progress with fundraising and through the Johns Foster or revenue, um, we, uh, we said no more unpaid internships. Like, I know it sounds very, very, very attractive, really, really attractive. But if we can, we should pay. Yeah. And it, it's been working fine so far. Yeah. And the team is, is a strong one. Now, your team is all in Seattle, right? Yes. Is a, is a plan of going forward, have everyone in Seattle? Are you going to do remote stuff later on? or Haven't thought that far. Um, yeah. Right now, the that's kind of... Yeah, undecided. Um, okay. I mean, of course, remote things are way to go, but I mean, this Uncle Rudy says there's nothing like getting person in the same office, right? Now, now, I'm not saying like you should have like, you know, make everyone come to your office nine to five, Monday to Friday. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's bullshit, but like, I think there's goodness like everyone get in the same place like once a week or twice, once yeah. every two weeks, right? I mean, just, you can't, there's nothing to talk about it, right? 
Zoom is great, but there's something missing about Zoom. Yeah, I, that's one thing that I do enjoy about kind of the engineering culture and kind of when we created Omega Up, we met once, one time at one cafe mm -hmm. in Mexico. And then we said, are we going to do this? Yes. Awesome. Let's go. And then the next few years, we're all online. Mm -hmm. And I think having uh, the ability to write, to express your ideas in writing, is tremendous, mm -hmm. absolutely fundamental uh, if you want to be a distributed team. Because mm -hmm. it's one thing to be distributed, but still be synchronous, meaning yeah. I need to talk that's, to you. That's the big thing right there. One that's by the one. big thing, yeah. So I, I would separate a synchronous versus asynchronous and remote versus on-site. Yeah. So synchronous, we need, whether we are in the office or remote, synchronous means that I need a meeting with you to tell you that the TCP reports need to be turned in or whatever, um, the TPE has reports. Um, another organization might be able to tell you via email or in a message, like you need to turn this in, that's it. You do, you take action when yeah. you can. And you can do that whether you're on-site or remote. Yeah. So I heavily, I don't really care that much about remote versus on-site. I care more about sync versus async. Okay. That's a good point. And how do you do this? Like, I think a lot of Star Farms messes up, right? So like, expose me, right? I'm like, you know what? We're going to communicate by Slack. Nothing about Slack. But the people working with me, like, you know, they prefer Discord, right? Yeah. To me, it makes no sense to say, okay, I like Slack. Eight other people like Discord. We're going to do Slack, right? Mm. Like, uh, you should like communicate the way you people want to communicate, right? Well, it depends with who. Uh, so with my customers, I we usually do dictate, well, not dictate, but like we agree on a common uh, communication mechanism. Mm -hmm. But if my customer, and this happens all the time, uh, my customer all of a sudden texts, mm -hmm. I will text back. Okay. If they call, I will call. I okay. will answer. So you let, you let them take the lead and yeah, just follow up? Yes, yes. We have uh, an agreed upon medium of communication. For, but for the people in the team, mm -hmm. that's a different story. Like for us, Discord mm -hmm. is the way to communicate. Mm -hmm. That's it. Why? Because that's where we control, where we have access to access control, mm -hmm. where we have all the documents, uh, where we have all the conversations, where we have all the history, where we have all the um, tribal knowledge about what we're doing. I'm really, really big on, on that. So from your point of view, Discord is better than Slack. I don't like. Like, why do y'all pick Discord over all the choice you have? Discord. It was a popular choice. Was it okay? That's it. Uh, that's pretty much it. I know a lot of people like Discord. I haven't gone on there yet. I'm, a, I'm on Slack, but yeah, I need to look at Discord. I know so many people are on there. There's so many people in there. Uh, I would say uh, maybe a, a reason was because everybody at the university uses Discord. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of the tool of choice. The other thing that I do remember making this comment is that I don't know if this is still the case, probably not. But when I had multiple Slack accounts or servers, I don't, I don't know if they call them some servers. Uh, if you wanted to go from one to the other, it would kind of sign you out and take like 10 seconds mm -hmm. to reload you in to your workspace. And now you can talk to people in this other thing. But with Discord, what I love is that everybody has one user mm. and then you can add that one user to multiple servers and then the server the transition from a server to another server is just like instantaneous you don't okay. think about it yeah all right so back to the culture question 
So what's the culture of DevMatch right now? And is that the culture you actually want it to be? Yeah. So I think the culture of DevMatch right now is one of structure. Uh, we, we, we have a lot of processes. Uh, like when I say that we do Scrum, like we really do Scrum. Like we track every single hour that gets uh, of capacity. We track how much things we, um, we track how much we think things are going to take. And then as we progress, we download. I mean, I could show you all this stuff. And this all stuff is in the in the Azure DevOps um, website. And so I would say it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a culture where you can expect structure. But at the same time, we are a startup. So even though there's structure on how you do things, there's a ton of flexibility, not, not even flexibility. There's the need for autonomy from whoever is employed at DevMatch. So one of the things that I tell the UX designers, for instance, I know you're just graduating and I know that you are just kind of limited in experience, but you're here to tell me what to do. My job is basically a CEO just to hire you Make sure that you get your paycheck mm. and set the vision. Yeah. And then everything else, you're going to tell me. Mm. You're going to tell me what should we be doing, why. And, you, and not only tell me, you need to convince me mm. because I'm going to have my own opinions. And I'm not saying that as a challenge. I'm just telling you, like, what's my nature? Like, if you tell me, Alan, we should be going all in on recruiters, Why? Why are we going all in recruiters? Well, I just met a recruiter and she seemed like a nice person. <laughs> well, no, it's very different. But but you need to tell me what to do. That's why I expect. Uh, and sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes people just. So I'll push back just a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, you are the CR, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're CR, a four person company, 10,000 person, you're the CR, right? I mean, do you think, like, I don't say I get intimidated, but like, they might, you might say that a lot, but they're like, in the mind, like, okay, he's saying that. But he's still a CEO. I, I can't like really do this, right? Yeah, like, that's 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 something that happens quite often, actually, because they'll come. I'll say that they'll come and say we need to do this, and I'm like, no, mm. and they're like, okay. <laughs> they're like, and, and like you failed the test. <laughs> okay. You failed my test. You <laughs> failed. Like okay, but but the, the what they don't know, or maybe I'm not explaining myself, is that. That's just kind of my nature. Like I want to have a discussion. I want at the end of the day, I, I normally I wouldn't just say no. I would say no. I don't think that's right. And they're like, okay, we'll do something else, right? But what I really want to happen—that's when I what I really. That's you say. I'm not paying you to agree with me. I want to you to tell me why you want to do this. And when I say I don't think that's the right idea, I want you to. Prove, like, tell me, no, 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 this is the right idea because this, 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 and this. And then I'm going to get agitated because I'm going to say, no, we don't have, a, uh, like, time to do that. And then you're going to be like, but it's critical. You know, that discussion, yeah. that back and forth, that's where really good things happen uh, as opposed to, and then that doesn't always work. Yeah. And so I have to fall back to, let's do this. Which sometimes it is the the most efficient thing to do, and and that's another thing I learned in the MBA is that leadership is not like I have I have I struggle so much with leadership. It's to define it, to kind of explain it, but I can tell you this: it is not one way of acting. Some people say that oh, I want to be um, 
this type of leadership or this. No, you you learn about the different styles of leadership and then you apply them when they apply, when they when they are needed. Yeah, and people mess up like you have to use different styles of leadership for every people on your, on your team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And people motivate by different things, you know, like like one person might be really close to his grandmother, right? Well, if you're a good boss or a good leader, you don't let that guy have time off to go to his grandparents' birthday party, yeah. right? You know, or just some people, yeah, and a lot of people like, you can't be a one-size-fit-all thing, I don't Absolutely. think. Absolutely, I would say so. But so many people get that wrong. So next, there's a thing called a proceed where you're the subject of some kind of business case competition. Yes. Is that is that just recently passed or is it about to go on? or Less than a month ago, yes. Okay. So the less than a month ago, we were invited. Well, actually, one of our advisors told us about this thing. And this is yet another student-led um, effort for helping startups in the UW community. So what Proceed is, as I understand it, it's an incubator from students for students. Uh, in this case, they were doing a case competition and they were inviting us to be the case uh, competition subject. And that was that was phenomenal. That was um, where we really got a lot of great ideas um, and uh, we really wanted to give them the question Okay, ChatGPT is a thing now. Engineers can solve assessments in 10 seconds. What does that mean? And what is the competition doing? What does that mean for DevEng? And what is the competition doing? That's that that was the prompt, more or less. So ChatGPT, ChatGPT let's talk about the bit. So like not maybe two years ago, Web3 was a big thing. Oh, Web3 is gonna take over the whole world. Yeah. Has it probably not right? So ChatGPT, do you think it's going to like go the way of Web3 and like kind of go fade away? Do you think it's like actually something that's going to like change everyone's life, so to speak? ChatGPT is just the product that is built on top of uh, the large language models. Mm-hmm. I think large language models are insanely going to change. They're going to shift things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. They're, gonna, they're, they're going to have an impact. Mm-hmm. And I personally was never into the Web3 kind of movement mm-hmm. I think I sort of understand it but AI for instance for instance was way much uh, important to me uh, it was during my undergrad it was during when I was in undergrad I thought my career was gonna go in computer vision mm-hmm. open CV and all that stuff I was obsessed I was I when I was in in undergrad I was obsessed with creating an algorithm that was um, able to look at a road, look at all the different signs mm-hmm. of um, like the road signs, like 50, uh, the limit of the speed limit and stuff like that. And then just prevent the driver, the, the human driver from going over that speed. Mm-hmm. And I have demos and stuff like that. Uh, and then I went to a, uni- a university over there in Mexico and they had a, a vi- computer vision lab. And I was like, whoa, computer vision is so big that it has a laboratory with pe- where people come in and do computer vision. This is what I want to do. This is my life. And it, it didn't turn that way, but I was always very intrigued and interested in, comp- in, in AI and, and machine learning. And so, yes, I do think that machine learning is going to change a lot of the jobs that we do. For us in particular, the introduction of a large language model that can produce code instantaneously with high confidence that is correct 
is challenging because most of the technical assessments out there are algorithmic based or data structure based that are easily solved by ChatGPT. Talk about this hackathon you got coming on this Friday. Like, what's the goal on it? How do you put it together? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, so the hackathon is um, our attempt of getting the deaf match platform. And are you doing this like by yourself or the Universal Watch? Is this a solo deaf match? No, this thing? is inc uh, exclusively deaf match. Yeah, what we're trying to do is just kind of bring people together and have them solve an assessment. So, so quickly, like how you, how you advertise this? Like how do people find out this? Like Discord. Discord. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, and how many people have signed up so far? Uh, just one. Just one. Okay. <laughs> and is this Friday? Okay. We got to put, put the word out about that. Yes. Yes. Well, we posted it uh, on Friday, uh, on yesterday. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, it's and it's a very kind of impromptu thing. Is there like any prizes involved or like what kind of problem they solve? Not really. No, there's no prizes right now. So, this deathmatch started because of competitive programming and competitive programming you come in and then you compete you solve a cha technical challenges and then um yeah you you might get a prize or whatnot we're doing the exact same thing mm -hmm. but with deathmatch assessments okay deathmatch assessments are different mm -hmm. they test you in real engineering tasks mm -hmm. not algorithms okay so here it matters the type of solution that you write in sense in the sense in the engineering sense in the sense that another human is going to read what you're doing and when you're writing on a solution for a competitive program it doesn't matter mm -hmm. like you can hard code the solution and it'll work over here we're doing different style like here's a problem here's a real world problem implement it and that is something um that has been in my mind for a long time. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we're losing a bunch of team members uh, that Friday mm -hmm. because the quarter ends. And yeah. as somebody that hires a bunch of uh, a multitude of students, um, that's normal. But I said, okay, let's let's do it. Let's do a big push. Let's have a grand finale, I guess. And so that is what the hackathon is all about. Okay. So next, you were at Microsoft like nine or 10 years? Nine, nine and a half. How do your time at Microsoft help or hurt you at what you're doing right now? Oh, incredible. Both. <laughs> Both. It hurt me because it put me the golden handcuffs, you know? So you're, you're this uh, tech employee getting all these massive uh, salary bonuses, stock awards, all that stuff. And you are working on incredibly impactful stuff. And you are working with incredibly smart people. So you don't want to leave. Because you're having a good time. But you also have this... I, I call it, like, I've heard people call it the Microsoft Country Club. The Microsoft... <laughs> yes, yes. I was I was a member for some time. And I didn't want to leave. Even though I, I deep down did want to leave. So that's that's kind of a negative. I Another thing is that it got me into the rat race. Uh, it introduced me to me wanting to get higher and higher just for the sake of getting higher and higher. Um, I have a couple of friends like, like work at different like big orders at Amazon and they're like, that was a great startup idea. And like, you know, have something, but like, man, I'm about to get this director role, this senior director role. And like, they're like, they can't figure out what they want to do. Right. Absolutely. It's tough. Um, especially I remember my very first promotion. I wasn't expecting it. I was just like, I was so naive, so naive. I still am, but I was so naive even more then. And I come into my meeting 
uh, with my manager and he's like, congratulations, you're promoted. And it's like, they turned the switch, click. I was like, oh my God, this feels great. This is amazing. So I want I want more. Um, and with, with, with more promotions, you get more visibility and more, you get to work in more impactful stuff and all that stuff. So definitely the golden handcuffs were there. Um, on the other hand, it helped me quite a bit. Well, the golden handcuffs helped me fund what I'm doing right now. So that's also positive. Um, but more directly, um, I was... In my very last position, we were hiring uh, for a, um, we were hiring another person. And we were giving a ton of resumes. And I was going through all the resumes and I'm like, this person has a three page resume with tons and tons of technologies. And I'm like, this is almost useless to me because I mean, this person knows Java and this other person knows Java, but like this person read a book last night and then put it on the resume. And this person has actually deployment uh, um, production uh, experience with Java applications in the cloud or something. So there's no way for me to compare. So I'm still gonna have to ask the exact same question. So that's that's when I really said, you know, this is this is not right. Like this is this is useless almost. Um, so it really pushed me to pursue Deathmatch even more. Uh, the other thing I noticed during my time at uh, Microsoft is that it really formed me professionally in the sense of like um, running projects like Scrum, like really being um, very very good at documenting and just explaining what I what is it that I've done, something that I realized I really, really enjoy. And the final thing is that it really matured. It gave me a space to do be entrepreneurial in a safe space. So for instance, right now, this is it. That much is it for me. Like if I fail, my life is not over. <laughs> it's almost over. No, I'm just joking. It's not over. But like uh but it's, it was gonna hurt, you know? But you can be entrepreneurial at Microsoft, doing entrepreneurial things, and it's kinda gonna be okay. So going back to something else, like, why are you such a, like, when and why do you become a, such a proponent of Scrum, the Scrum methodology? I just think it works. I just think it's been useful, and I think um, it hasn't, it doesn't, well, I guess the downside is that it takes a lot of time, but it's time that is, uh, um, saved by not doing things that are not needed. So by doing the sprint planning, it really, really forces you. Like I didn't have principles. I didn't have objectives of things that we needed to do. But when I was running sprint planning, I was like, how do I decide that this is more important than this? And this is gonna, this is more important than this. We need principles. So I established the principles. And then day to day, um, like I know from my own people, own collaborators, that other startups don't do this and that it's really chaotic in some ways. But some people just say, no, that's just the startup, the startup life, it's chaotic. Well, it doesn't have to be chaotic. It's just like, you can provide structure and still be chaotic within that kind of space and then make a decision and then I, move I, can, on. I completely agree yeah. with that, yeah. 
And, and finally, the demos are amazing because they showcase what we've done to the entire team. I really, really love Microsoft uh, leadership principles. Um, create clarity, generate energy, and deliver success. Create clarity ties directly into the use of Scrum. Like really, we have this massive goal of creating a successful startup. How, what does that look like? What do I need to do tomorrow to get to that massively distant point? So that's creating clarity. So I think I bring that with the Scrum methodology. And within that space, you can do whatever you want. Uh, generate energy. The demos bring massive amounts of energy because they showcase, oh my God, the, the work that my colleague is doing is amazing. Yeah. It's really amazing. I mean, because you can't like do a demo to your company like, and bring some bullshit, right? You're like, you got to... I would say put a performance on, you gotta show what you did, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if someone's like, what's the saying, like iron sharp is iron, sharp is iron right? Mm. You know, you're like, you know, one person's doing great, you came in, oh, whatever, you know, like you gotta, like, you gotta match, at least attempt to match what they're doing, right? And the other thing the demos bring is that it pushes you to finish. Mm. Sometimes I will be done with something and I check it off and everything's great. And I'm gonna, I'm doing the demo and then I'm like, oh crap, it doesn't work. Mm. I'm because I'm preparing for the demo because I'm gonna show it to the entire team. And like, oh, it doesn't work. So now I need to do this other thing uh, that I didn't anticipate, but I only know about this because I had to demo it. I had to use it, mm. okay? And then the final principle, deliver success. Uh, this uh, is, something that I want to do, like I, th I feel we're doing gradually, like we are growing, like we have revenue. Oh my God, like a year ago, that was unthinkable. Um, we have recurring revenue, which even, is- Even better. Even better, even better. like <laughs> people are staying. We have customers referring customers. That is just mind blowing. To what we, to how we started, we started with just uh, layers of intent and just going to events and just kind of a very small website. And um, I, I, I like that Scrum forces you to deliver success, like show you how you're delivering success. So that's why I like Scrum. What advice do you have for like new developers? A new developer for kind of just growing their career. Don't become a developer. <laughs> Don't be, no, no, no. I would say something that I really, get a mentor would be the most clear thing that you can do, get a mentor. Um, something that, someone that you know you, um, ad, not admire, but like respect mm. and you could never, ever, ever, talk with this person because they're so smart. Like, no, just do it. And sometimes they will say yes. And don't just say, oh, uh, can I be your mentee? No, like come with a plan. Like it's, it's on you to have a great mentor. <laughs> Find the things that you need to get better at, create a plan. Well, not create a plan, but like um, just kind of have a very good understanding of what you want to get. And then, Go to that mentor and then maybe don't even say the word mentor in the first meetings. Just say, um, I have a question and I know you're really, really good at this. And I just was just wondering if I could ask you a few questions. And then once that meeting goes well 
and they see that you're really interested and that you're taking their advice, then just say, hey, next month I'm having this other project. Uh, would you mind? And then it's going to become a mentorship. Don't just come into the first meeting saying, I need a mentor. And will you be my mentor? And will you be meeting me for me to one hour every month? Something like that. Yeah. That would be my advice. Who are your mentors? The first mentor that I had, like a true mentor, was um, somebody that I met at a conference. I don't, I don't know if she was the first mentor, but she was certainly one of the most impactful mentors. Um, I met, I, I went to a nonprofit conference because I wanted to learn more about nonprofits because I was running Omega Up, and. I saw her going into, I was going to all the finance workshops because she, uh, because uh, that's what I was lacking. I don't really understand finance. And I saw that she was going to all the finance sections as well. And then at the very end of the conference in Bellevue, I uh, saw her leaving and I just grabbed some courage and I said, I, I reached, I, I ran, well, not ran, but like kind of said, hey, uh, I noticed that you went to all of the finance uh, sections of this uh, conference. Uh, I have a bunch of questions. Would you be open to speaking with me? She said, yes. Okay. And then we met. And then I remember bringing... Um, the balance sheet and the income statement and a few other things, very, very basic stuff that I had no idea about, uh, that I had no idea anything about. And she was a nonprofit finance uh, kind of, that, that was her field. And she just kind of said, well, this is how you do it. This is how you balance. This is how you should balance uh, balance sheet. And well, not that deep, but like, the basics, the very basics, very basics. And then we met again and then again and then again and then again. And then she up to the point where I said, you, I want you to be, I would love for you to be on the board of directors. Mm -hmm. And she said, yes, after some mm -hmm. discussion. And then, yeah. You, you mean board of advisors, right? No, board of directors. Board directors, okay. directors okay. yeah, okay. big deal. Uh, so, so that is a big deal. Yeah, so board of directors. Um, and then... She, to this day, we haven't spoken much since then because that was mostly for that. When I stepped down from being the CEO of the nonprofit, then kind of didn't, don't have as much contact, mm -hmm. but she's uh, amazing. She, yeah, her name is Amanda. Who are you mentoring? I, for the most part, like to think that, um, many of my employees or the people that work at DevMatch. So for instance, some of my one-on-one -on -one meetings are just like, we're going to talk, we're going, I'm going to give you a news article or, or something, and then you're going to read it, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. And that's been great. Uh, and then I also, I'm also an instructor at something called Young Entrepreneurs Academy, uh, which is kind of an accelerator for high school students. So I spend a lot of a lot of time with high school students, um, just kind of teach, well, not teaching, but like instructing or just kind of guiding them through the journey of being an entrepreneur. So, what are some things that you like or and don't like about being an entrepreneur? That I like the freedom 
sometimes too much freedom. Sometimes there's like infinite possibilities. You don't know how to move forward. Um, it's just exciting. So much, there's just like adrenaline. There's just, just like, the thing that you're doing has not been done before. And, and I think that is really, really, and I, and I, and, and one of the biggest things is I maybe, I think having a sustainable build, business is one of the most challenging things that I will ever do in my life. Like it is incredibly difficult and maybe it's just because I choose ideas that are not, well, not that I choose the ideas, but like the things that I choose to work on are maybe in my mind, rather difficult because it's not a um, moonshoot moon kind of thing. It's kind of, and it's gonna, it's it's some sort of 10 year incremental improvement over what we have today. It's not slightly better, it's a 10 year improvement over what we have today. And I think a lot of people expect entrepreneurs to have this massively brilliant idea that is going to take people to the moon uh, or to Mars or, or something like that. So that is that is something that is both good and bad. Things that I, that I don't like are that making tough decisions uh, in terms of like saying no to an employee uh, or you you recruit a bunch of people. Well, in the process of in the process of recruiting so many uh, uh, one even job description, you have to engage with I don't know fifty, mm -hmm. in my case, and then out of those fifty, ten are really good. Out of those ten, five are really 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 good, and three you really really want to hire. And saying no to the other two is has been really, really tough. Like, don't take this, like, you're amazing. You are really, really amazing. Uh, the other thing that is a negative is that um, it's kind of long hours. Yeah, it's, it's tough to keep track of your uh, personal life. Yeah. You have a good point. I, a lot of people don't realize this. Like, I, I think stats show that each job has like 250 applications. Those 250, maybe like 10 actually make it the next step, you know. Of those 10, maybe like, I would say 10 get a phone interview, interview five. And so many people, like, you know, they, they get an interview, right? They'll get the job. They get kind of like done. So, oh, I get the job. You're like, you're the top five of 250. Like, you're doing something right, right? Like, yeah. it's not like you're like, the end of the interview, right? And yeah. it's, it could be, it is so subjective, right? It could be any kind of reasons. And the reason that you're making that person number two could be completely stupid. Yeah. Very, very stupid. And so that person could very well be number one. So telling that number two and number three, because you at this point you have already spent a significant amount of time with them. Yeah. And so telling them that... Not easy to do. The, the, the information that I have in front of me is making me choose this yeah. other person. Yeah, you, 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 number two can be very well the best person for the job, but based on information, it's, it's not it. Yeah, yeah, and so telling the other people, and then something that has happened is that that first choice doesn't work out. Yeah. And then you have to go to the other, uh, you have to go down the, the ranking. Yeah. People don't realize this, how subjective is like, example I'll use like, suppose you have like one person doing an interview, right? 
and they can they can do interview at like a nine nine in the morning on Monday, right? We'll say nine morning on Tuesday, right? Yeah. And they're probably not the best qualified person job, mm-hmm. you know, but like they did the research, you know, they know the people that interview them, like, you know, they made a couple of jokes, whatever. The the four panelists had a great weekend, you know, they're all happy go lucky, you know, everyone's a good mood, you know. Yeah. The 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 the, the candidate really answered the questions correctly, but like, you know, he has a good personality, people like him, whatever case may be. And he did a good enough job, right? But still not best qualified, right? So one PM, the best qualified person the job is coming to interview, right? Yeah. Everyone's like, but at ten that morning, the one person on the panel found his mother was coming to, to stay for a week, so he's like kind of pissed now. Another guy went to go get some coffee at eleven, had a wreck, you know. Another panelist pretty much got yelled at by the boss for something what he was supposed to do, right? So they're all not in the best mood at one o'clock, right? And the dude that comes at one o'clock, like he knows everything technically, but his is like. He doesn't like have any personality, right? Yeah. And so, based on like skills, you should probably hire the person one p.m. But who's gonna get the job? The first person, right? And it's, it's just a tip like that, you know. Is that, that is, right? Is it wrong? Is it fair? Not fair? I don't know, but you know, that's the way life is, unfortunately. That is correct. Yeah. That's kind of what we're trying to change mm-hmm. uh, with Deathmatch in yes. some ways, because um, uh, the the talent respects no. I don't know. I don't know forms, mm-hmm. and so talent is in so many unexpected ways. So the 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 current um, uh, executive director of Omega Up, Joe, uh, he was telling me that there's this university outside of the outskirts of of any big city. It's it's just a very 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 small town, and yet they have the high, one of the the highest kind of rates of engineering talent that comes to work for big tech. I don't know I don't know if the highest, but like there's a lot of people from that very particular school that is completely separated from the big cities that you would expect that is producing amazingly good talent. And one of the other things that I remember at Microsoft, again, I, I met so many amazing people. One of them, um, Beatriz, and Beatriz was telling me he, she's also, well, she is very much into improving the chances of unrepresented um, individuals in tech. And she was telling me when we were, we were both where I was the executive director of Omega Up and she was telling me we met and she said, Alan, I just went to this Washington state farming city somewhere over here and they haven't been out of their community. Like you would think in the US, in Washington state. And yet you have people in communities that don't really know outside of where they yeah. were born. Yeah, a lot and of people like that. All, you, all they need is somebody that looks like themselves to show them that it is possible to do something different. And to me, that was very meaningful because it doesn't really, it, it's not about teaching them how to do a for loop. You don't have to teach them how to, you don't have to give them a computer. All you have to do is to get them to want it. Mm-hmm. And they will find the means. In many cases, not always, of course. But if you get them to want it, they will find a way to get a computer, to do a for loop, to get a job, to be successful. Yeah. 
in, in many cases, not always, of course. And all that you need to get them to want it is to show them that somebody like them was able to do it or was, was, is doing it right now. So um, all you have to do is just kind of be there and tell them sometimes your stories, sometimes what you went through, sometimes it'll match what they are doing. Sometimes it, it, was, it was really special to hear from, from her, yeah. Alan, how does DevMatch fail? Oh my God, so many ways. Uh, it can fail as a business, but still be a success uh, um, in making and improving someone's life. It can fail both in as a business and in improving anybody's life. So fails as a business if we don't in so many ways, like we are unable to attract investment that we need to build a platform. It can fail as a business if we are targeting the incorrect in um, ideal customer profile. It can fail if we have a team that simply is unable to create the platform. It can fail if me, I, I say this uh, sometimes, if me as CEO, I am so greedy with the startup that I am unable to incorporate ideas and incorporate people that think differently than me and many other ways, but those are the things that are top of mind. Yes. So talk some more about how DevMesh got started what you're focusing on right now, what your, your big vision for the company is moving forward. Yeah. DevMatch started because when I was at Omega Up, I realized that we had a massive database of students and their demonstrated skills. And then at the other hand, we have a massive pool of companies that want to hire talent. And it would it was just straight like obvious to me that we could connect the two. And I said, as a nonprofit, we should be able to connect the two. And that will only give us more um, funding so that we can help even more people. But nonetheless, I was unable to help or to guide the startup in that direction. I tried really, really hard, hired consultants, started the dev work myself. I did a bunch of stuff, but I was unable to work um, an agreement with the board of directors, actually. Um, and I said, you know what? No, this isn't working. So I'm going to step out, really learn what it, leadership means, and then I might do something else. And then DevMatch um, came to be when... I was at Microsoft looking at all those resumes. I already knew that this was cooking in my brain, but I already knew that uh, Deathmatch was cooking when more, even more when I was looking at all those resumes and as I was just like thinking, this is useless. This is just not a great way of finding talent. And we launched at the, during the Masters of Science and Entrepreneurship. I was doing, I was, I, I knew I was presenting my previous startup that nobody, understood fully the composable e-commerce 
And I was just kind of feeling frustrated. And I said, you know what? I'm going to pivot. I'm going to transition completely. I'm going to shut that down. And then I'm going to uh, work on deathmatch. And so that's how it started. Okay. And what are you focusing on right now? Right now we're focusing on, no, well, those, those core four priorities, which is uh, creating, uh, having a contributor platform. So the, the point of DevMatch is that anybody can create assessments. So we're focusing on creating a platform where anybody can create assessments. That means incredible UX and technical capabilities that allow you to create technical assessments in DevMatch. Getting users, getting people to actually solve assessments on DevMatch. One of the amazing things that we can do is that if we have an assessment that tests you on, I don't know, Node.js, web development. And then we give you an assessment on something completely different that you don't know, that for some reason we know you don't know, that is, I don't know, assembly. We can track how much it, with enough assessments, we can track how much it takes you to learn something new. Why is this important? Because when we were doing customer development interviews, we were asking some of the engineers, what is the most important as a talent that an engineer can have? And they were saying, the ability to learn something new. And so if we can not only know that you know something right now, but we can somehow track and measure how good you are at learning something that you have never seen, that's meaningful. Because now we can show the company, this person knows this right now, and this is their index or their weight or their score on their ad ad adaptability or their ability to learn something new. So that's um, something that we're looking forward to. And how, and how about your, your future? So, yeah. I didn't finish the other the other two um, priorities. Uh, that was uh, creating users, uh, generating users. Then there's investment, and then there's uh, I'm sorry, customers, and then investments. The future, all these kind of help each other out. In fact, when I put it in the in the presentation, it's just kind of a circle. And the future for me looks like DevMatch is the platform where you can run technical assessments. So a lot of people give me grief that there's HackerRank, there's LeetCode, there's Codility, there's all those things. But there's no clear winner. When I show DevMatch to candidates, they still tell me, this is new. This is, this is something that is different from what I've seen from the other things. And that is something that I don't think I have been able to articulate to investors. So. Everybody thinks that there are a million uh, tech assessment platforms out there, and there are. Mm -hmm. um, but our kind of guiding principles are different. My challenge is that with AI and large language models, all of those assessments are in an instant done. Mm -hmm. And they are now moving on to better things. Now that's bad for us because they're going to land here. I had no doubt. And it's good because they are big companies. They're looking for the technology where to do this, which means that we can exit through an acquisition. So next question, and obviously don't answer this like some kind of sacred soft thing, right? But yeah. like, there's so many coding languages. I mean, you know, those Microsoft Azure, Rackspace, yeah. AWS, on and on, right? How y'all building these assessments? 
That is the core technical problem of DevMatch. We don't build the assessments. We build the infrastructure that allows anybody to create an assessment. What does that mean? So we give you, so all assessments require, I don't know, test cases. Sure. They all require some sort of computing mechanism that allows you to run these uh, evaluators. So what we're saying is, let's build that basic infrastructure that allows you to create and run the assessments. In the same way that GitHub allows you to put code repositories in, they're not creating like the latest technology in open source. They just are the, infra the infrastructure that allows you to put your open source stuff in here. So that's kind of what we're doing. We're, we want to create the, I guess, the GitHub of uh, technical assessments. Okay. So your platform, is it more of like for non-tech founders versus tech founders? It is right now very much for technical founders, but the hope is that in the future, after we pass the hump of software engineering, much like Stack Overflow ever uh, did, Stack Overflow started with a technical question Q&A site. And then they decided that, hey, this approach of Q&A is really helpful, and it doesn't really have to be about software. It can be about anything, cooking, English, math. So they decided to open the Stack Exchange um, uh, kind of organization. And then now they have a bunch of stuff. That's exactly what we're doing. So we're starting with software engineering because that that's how it started. That's how where the money is. That's where the knowledge is. That's where we know that the pain point right now is because we experience it. But what we want to do is kind of move on to other verticals, other industries. So at some point, you will be able to do a question about marketing. Actually, you can do that right now, but we don't really, that's not what we're laser focused on. But ideally, you can have deathmatch assessments for anything. And that's that's kind of where we're going. Who is your like your perfect customer? The ideal customer profile right this instant is a person that has a set of uh, five or six uh, titles, one of them software engineer, another one hiring software engineer, lead software engineer that work in a company that is 10 to 99 employees in the state of Washington, that works for a company that produces software as their first, like as their main competency, they produce software. They are probably in charge of a team as opposed to somebody that is only in charge of writing code, although they understand what is being done, which is important. Some of their objectives are that they don't necessarily have purchasing power for the company and that they oversee this one team exclusively. So that's that's who we're targeting right now. All right, hey, Alan, can you do, do this demo real fast? Yeah. So I'm put this up. So Alan can do a demo of DevMatch. Absolutely. So DevMatch, let me just uh, move this here. DevMatch is, again, a technical assessment platform that allows you to run technical assessments that are simulations of real life engineering challenges, uh, as opposed to having algorithmic or data structure-based um, questions when you're running interviews. So this is what you would do as a 
um, recruiting uh, manager or hiring manager. So I have this project demo. You can come into Deathmatch and just basically create your project. And then the project is just your way of saying, I want to hire this one individual or this many individuals with this title and just kind of how long am I willing to set the end and start date? There's a description. You might have another um, set of administrators. You also have a problems. You select the problems from the pool of problems that we have. Right now, there's very few, but there's, an, there's, there's a few problems right now that allow you to assess web development, machine learning in Python, and a few other small things in HTML. But the core is that anybody can come in and create their own assessments on DevMatch. And the other thing is that you can actually create your own assessments if you have the time and technical ability to create your assessments. And then you start adding your candidates here. Let's say we invite Alan Gonzalez. And then you put their email and then you invite them. You can have calibration users or just regular candidates. Calibration users are people that you trust that are kind of good at whatever this task is asking. And then you basically send it to them just to see, hey, what do you think about this assessment? And then whatever they say or they score doesn't really count towards the ranking or the submissions. And that's it. So then you actually send the assessment. We really don't want to create a, an ATS, but that's kind of what's happening uh, behind the scenes. Uh, ATS being the applicant tracking system. Um, so right now we use some other uh, technical as, uh, applicant tracking systems. So now that's it. That's it from your perspective as a recruiter. Let's say you're non-technical recruiter, and then that's all you need. You, you send something from the pool of candidates uh, to your candidates, and that's it. If you do know a thing or two about what you're hiring for, you can go to the problem, uh, to the explore page and create a problem. And then in here, you can create a new problem. It can be either public because you can let the community use your assessment or it can be private so that only you can use it. And then in here, uh, we have documentation on how to fill out the all important code aspect. So the code is what basically tells you what are you going to be asking the candidate? What are they going to be evaluated on and all those things? And then as I mentioned, we have a bunch of assessments right now, but uh, we're building the documentation and the platform so that much more, many more people can come in and contribute. Or assessors pass fails are like a grade, like A, oh, B, C, D. I'll show you. So let's say that I invited myself. I actually didn't invite myself because this is your account. But this is what I see. Um, So as a candidate, I received an email and I go into my email and then I click, oh, Jason has invited me and this is what I see. And what I get is this, the arena. You have one hour to solve this assessment. 
and they're like they can't take a break they can't like pause or anything it's like one it's hour one hour it's one hour and i know it's tough but it's really the best way to really be able to compare one to another mm-hmm. because sometimes you give assessments and then you you get a really good assessment answer and you don't know if this person took eight hours mm-hmm. that's why it looks so great and the other hand you have another person that submitted something that looks just enough mm-hmm. they did exactly what they were asked to do, but they only took 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So what we said is just like every single assessment is one hour. And the other thing is that we asked a bunch of candidates, a bunch of um, people uh, that are usually taking assessments, and they said, I am tired of taking assessments that are five, six hours long. Mm-hmm. So that's ridiculous, right? That's 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 kind of the thing. Now, this is an assessment. This is actually the assessment that we created for you. Uh, Jason, so as you can see, we have a realistic assessment, which it says, you must complete a few pending resources for this human resources backend service. Uh, you have a GraphQL uh, endpoint uh, that uses DynamoDB, which happens to be the real case. And then here's what I want. The list user's unit test is failing because blah, blah, blah. The update user API is broken. Uh, we need a new employee account field. So things that you would come in and ask your developer yeah. if they were coming to work tomorrow. Now, the other thing is that, as you can see, it is not that we provide you with a... So how do you come up with this assessment, right? Like just something like you research it or like how, I mean, because it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty detailed, right? I mean, like... I had to research this yeah. on you. Mm-hmm. Ideally, in the, in the scaling plan, you would do this yourself or okay. your engineer. Okay. Because... We're targeting companies that already have some sort of engineering mm-hmm. capabilities because they're hiring more. Like startups hire one engineering talent and then that's it for like a year and then they hire more. Um, but ideally, you would already have somebody that knows what they're doing. But see, I think we do. I think this would be golden for like non-tech startup founders. Absolutely, right? I I don't I disagree. Mean, I mean, like it might, it might obviously be more work on your part because like you know, like me, I have no idea how to do this right. Yeah. But I, I think there's so many tech founders, not tech startup founders, like are going through so many tech people, right? You know, because like my own story, you know my own story, right? You like it's it's been a been a fucking a shit field, right? Yes. But like, something like this will help so many non tech founders like be successful, I think. Or at least increase the chance of being successful. Uh, absolutely. Some people... Uh, and maybe you charge the United Tech founders more money. I don't know. Well, that's a great idea. Uh, so, someone called this the uh, kind of your co-pilot mm-hmm. when you're hiring technical talent. And the idea is that you don't have to come up with all this. Like this is custom made for you. Mm-hmm. Like we took the steps. Mm-hmm. But at some point, we're going to have enough assessments that one of them is going to be close enough. Yeah, close to enough, work. Yeah. So you don't even have to create it. You know, like a lot of tech people, like, you know, they say they're doing, but they don't really do, you know, a lot of, you know, bullshit going on, you know, like, yeah. And the other thing that we did with the proceed that we spoke about earlier is that we said, well, can we create some sort of coding, um, some sort of program or an an add-on that is going to create the assessments on the fly Mm -hmm. just for you? Like we can go into your website, see how it's built, at least the front end, and just create an assessment just for you. Yeah. Maybe that that would be amazing. Like I know you focus like like you said engineering teams already, but I just think it's a game changer not tech founders, right? Like if I was a I'd say hey, like maybe spend more time like focus on non tech founders, right? Because like I know so many non tech founders here in Seattle having trouble like finding tech talent. This would like be a godsend to them. It will be. It will be a godsend. Uh, At a cost, of course. And and. 
let me show you how I as a candidate will do this. So I come in and I look at the Git repository. And again, this is not given to you, like it's not pre-made, like you need to know how to use Git, Git being the version control system that this uh, use, uh, this problem uses. And again, the Git service is not really tied to this problem. It's not really tied to DevMatch. It can be anything. You can use anything. Uh, you can use GitHub. We have problems that use GitHub actually. And But in this case, we use a, a private Git repo that is hosted by us, that is created just for you. So in this case, we say, I don't know, the update user API is broken. So now I need to kind of look for where this thing is. And this, the thing that I'm doing right now is essential. So you don't want somebody that just kind of, you tell them what to do and then they look for it and then, oh, I found it. Yes, uh, here's, here's, no, navigating code from somebody else that somebody else wrote, massive, massive uh, skill that you need to have. Because more times, uh, more often than not, you're gonna come to projects that have already been created for you, that have been created by your previous developer and then the previous developer and then the previous. So what you want is somebody that knows where things are. And maybe the names are not kind of the best, but that's kind of reality. Like uh, this is English, but this might well be a foreign language to me, to be honest with you, right? Yeah. So it, it is for some people that apply, that is massive. We get people that apply, open the assessment, and then they bail mm -hmm. because they don't really know how to do it. Mm -hmm. That's great because you save them time, you save your time yourself. And even though they don't know what they, this, uh, they don't know how to fix it in the one hour time slot that they have, they now know what is, what is being asked of them in the job. Does anyone come back and say an hour is not enough time? Mm, they say, well, some of the recent feedback that I remember is that this is, certainly something that is pressured like it, there's you feel the pressure of the one hour thing but it's not undoable yeah it's definitely not undoable this assessment that i'm showing you right now is is, is brand new so we're probably going to tweak it and, and you did all this yourself or were your developers who did this this one I did myself. Yeah, the developers work on everything else. So, for okay. instance, the arena, the actual arena, like the submit, the time left, the all everything, okay. like all the structure that the other developers did. But the assessments are always. But always definitely, sometimes pretty soon you gotta like the, the other people do this, right? Yeah, you can't do it yourself. As a matter of fact, today this sprint is when for the very, 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 very first time in the history of Deathmatch, somebody else is creating an assessment. Okay. So that's amazing. Anyways, uh, you. Can come here and then you make changes. Uh, let's say, uh, here is my change. This is just a comment. Mm -hmm. It is not going to be meaningful to anything. Now, how do you push your, your changes? You, I mean, you did something, how do you push it? You do a commit. Why? Because that's what you would do. on the real uh, job and then you push. And then I, I typed really, I typed fast, but what I did stops people. Mm -hmm. So even just from the Git URL 
to the where you have the code. There, so some people say, oh, it doesn't work. This GitHub repository doesn't work. I'm not like, no, this is not a Git repo. This is uh, this is not a GitHub repo. It's a Git repo. And if you worked, if you have some experience, you'll know that this is not a GitHub. I mean, this has nothing to do with GitHub, but people expect it to be GitHub for some reason. And then again, you push, and then here's uh, where we come in as DevMesh, you submit. Now the submission, what it's going to do, is going to take what you've done and run through some tests. And now you have this thing. And now this thing is going to automatically evaluate against the test cases that we have given you and see if what you've done really does indeed um, satisfy the test cases. So this is critical because number one, it tells the candidate what they're missing. If they score zero, now they know why. If they score a hundred, now they know why. And this is another, this is the other pillar that during the customer development interviews we learned. We don't, some people, spend their time doing an assessment and they don't get any feedback. They just get ghosted. And so at the very least, you now know by using DevMatch that, hey, you got all the test cases. So basically you're adding value to these candidates, to you know, candidates, at, at, at no cost to them, right? To the candidates, yes, just by participating. And that accrues to the value that they uh, um, kind of relate to the so company. You have, you have, so you have all these developers get better. Yes, yes. What happens if someone like accidentally click submit? Can they like what happens? Like, can they they can submit again. They can submit okay. again. I can submit again. Uh, okay. So okay, so you, like you can take the assessment multiple times. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But yeah, no, yeah, yeah. But each one has to be within an hour. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So right now we have some time left. So I uh, click submit, and right now this thing is being evaluated, and it'll give me an assessment of how well I did on every single test case that I'm that I'm doing right now. From the assessment you've done so far, like what percentage of people have actually, like I say, like passed the assessments? That depends on the assessment. Mm -hmm. um, so we have an example over here. So let me give, let me give you an example. So now I'm gonna go back to the recruiter dashboard. Let's say that you sent out your assessment mm -hmm. to a hundred candidates or so, and now you're back. You want to see how they did, and you look at the pipeline and the pipeline tells you, okay, so I had 51 candidates that I sent out this to. Uh, 10 of them were invited for some reason. I didn't invite maybe because they didn't have authorization to work in the US. So I only invited 10. Eight opened the problem and eight completed the problem, but only six actually- That's, that's interesting that two didn't Submit after they complete it. That's, that's interest right there. That happens all the time. Does it? Yeah. Because you think it's because they, they, they think they didn't do, good, didn't do, good, didn't do a, a good job at it? They or? don't understand what's going on yeah. um, in some cases. like they and, and they know it, and they tell us, uh, which I very much appreciate. Um, yeah. They come into the assessment. They Because when you're applying, you apply to 100 jobs, yeah. right? Yeah. And then some of them, you don't really know what you, mm -hmm. what's going on, mm -hmm. but you still apply. Mm -hmm. And then you might pass the interview, but you don't really know. But well, if you complete it, you would think you'd, like, you'd take one extra step to submit the button, right? I mean, yeah. But some people just come in, read it, and number one, mm -hmm. they either don't know, like we're saying, they're like, no, I don't really know GraphJL, mm -hmm. uh, GraphQL or something, mm -hmm. or they don't want to. Yeah, That is the other massively important thing. Mm -hmm. So they say, oh, 
you know what? I don't want to work on web development more. Mm -hmm. I want to work on iOS. And I see that this is web development. And like with assessment, you don't actually say the name of the company, right? Uh, like you no. don't say this assessment for Kevin's HR. This is like you know ABC mm -mm, company. Mm -mm. Okay, so it's not like they get like like they like you know this assessment for Kevin's HR. Let me use this Kevin's HR. I ain't no way how I want to work for this guy, right? Yeah. Okay. In your case, we did it because you said yeah, it's okay to yeah. use your name yeah. uh, and your code and all that stuff. Uh, but in other cases, we don't use it. Okay. And then the colors here are the sources. Uh, the different sources. Maybe some of them were recruited via LinkedIn. Some of them were recruited via Handshake. Yeah, I've never seen that. Yeah. So you know where people are coming from. And some people submit, some people don't. And this is the all important ranking. Mm -hmm. So for the, let's say, nine, eight people that submit it. Mm -hmm. So Laura got 100. Laura That's got 100. So you can see, okay, Laura opened the project on this time, this time, uh, and then they immediately scored 100. One thing I like about this, like, let's suppose, like, I'm making this up, you know, don't yeah. take this personal. People listen, like, suppose you have a company, right? And you're like, you know what? Let's, let's suppose Laura's like a redhead from, from um, Ohio, right? Yeah. And you're like, you know, from Michigan, and you hate people from Ohio, right? Mm. You know, like, I'm a Michigan State, Michigan University fan. I hate Ohio people, you know, whatever case may be. But you're like, damn, the business person, like, fuck. She's got a fucking 100. Yeah. Like, maybe I can overlook her being from Ohio, right? Well. Which I really like about this. You're alluding to a feature that we have not implemented, only talked about. But when you do this process, if you can choose to do that in the settings. So you will be able to. You won't see their names. Okay. So you cannot see. So you all you have to do is just send the assessment, mm -hmm. wait a few days, and then say, give me the top 10%. Yeah. And then only then you will see who's who. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we see people that submit it. Uh, let's take a look at Laura. So let's say you have an engineer on your team. Uh, you can take a look at exactly what is it that they change. So in this case, this is a demo. So even though I changed something else, I'm see we're seeing something else. Uh, but this, you can see their code. You can see Laura's code and see how well they did. And the very important thing is that you can use this as a starting point for the final round of interviews. Yeah. So you can come, you can invite Laura and say, you're invited to the interview and we're gonna go over your solution. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna ask questions about why did you do it this way? Yeah. Why not this way? What are the downsides of your implementation? All those things. And that is just a much better way of doing an interview rather than starting from scratch even though they already spent time, an hour, understanding this problem. Yeah. And I suppose you interviewed these four people, right? Laura, Kathy, Lee, and, and Rio, right? To me, like, Laura is like his above everybody else. But, but then again, like, you got to work with people, right? So maybe Laura's like a toxic person, right? And this, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe the person who scored 25, like, say, like, I love, no, I love this, I love that, you know? Yeah. So it's an indicator of a man, like, you can't ignore 100, right? It's, it is an indicator. And what we're saying is that, this is only like a screening assessment is mostly for who do you not want to hire, mm -hmm. not who you want to hire. Yeah. It's just who do you not want to hire? Mm -hmm. You can now spend your time talking to Norton, Kathy, Ryo, Lee and Laura, mm -hmm. you know, and you're going to have five meetings and you're going to spend some time with them. And yeah. But guess what? They already, well, not northern but both the top four already demonstrated that they have some idea of what needs to be done yeah. so you won't be sp uh, spending time with the other 
Yeah. 51. Yeah. You know? That's that's where we save. And this is so powerful. This is a time saving. It is so much time saving. And startups have like time is such precious of commodity. And and here's the massively good part a part that I like to emphasize. For your case in particular, Jason, this is your code. Mm. This is your code. This is this is Kafnis HR. So when they match this, when they match your um, interview mm -hmm. for cultural fit, and then they start working the next Monday, they already know. Yeah. You already know that they know. Mm -hmm. They demonstrated this to you. Yeah, That's the power of Deathmatch. Seems to be a powerful thing. Definitely got something here. And then of course, um, you can come in as a candidate and then just solve problems for fun, mm. for fun. Um, and because- um, Is that, Are you, are you gonna gamify that some kind of absolutely. way? Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's what, that was the main um, aspect of one of our UX researchers, Hannah. She spent a lot of time, she, she created two papers on how we're gonna gamify this thing. So anyways, this, this is Deathmatch. Nice. Thanks for that demo. Emma. Absolutely. So, um, what's um, how do people reach out to you on social media? Well, I am mostly active on LinkedIn, mm. and I have a Twitter account that I used to be more active on, <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much it. I spend most of my time on LinkedIn. Okay, is there anything that I should have asked you that I had to ask you yet, or anything else you want to talk about? There's one thing that I love to talk about, which is customer development. I am obsessed with customer development. And that is the one thing that I learned with Deathmatch as opposed to my other startups is how you do customer development um, or more specifically customer discovery. Mm -hmm. So customer discovery is done by doing interviews. And the most important thing that I wanted to mention is that it is not about you going to your potential customer and telling them about your idea. And because if you do that, you're just going to introduce a ton of bias. Mm -hmm. You're going to tell them that you care about this, that if they don't like it, they're gonna hurt your feelings and all sorts of things. And if you come and you tell them, I'm working on this idea, I've been working on this for a year, let me, uh, here it is, what do you think? Well, most people are gonna say, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. This is great, you're, you're amazing, you're, you're, uh, you're gonna be a, a, a rich entrepreneur, something like that, you know? Because they don't wanna hurt your feelings. Will they even buy the thing if it existed? Absolutely, well, most cases, no. So what you need to do is go to your target uh, customer profile and make it about them, 100% about them. Who are you? Just to make sure that they are indeed the right uh, individual that you wanna be targeting. What, are, what, what do you spend most of your time on? What, um, what are your struggles? What do you hate the most about this? Uh, and then slightly introduce the process that you're working on. What do you like about recruiting? What do you dislike about recruiting? If you had a, a magic wand and you could do anything about recruiting technical talent, what would it be? And guess what? At the end, they might not even mention anything about technical assessments and that's fine. But you need to record that. You need to be able to say, well, you know what? We talked to 50 people 
And none of them said anything about technical recruitment, technical assessment platforms. And that's huge because even if you have a massively, insanely good technical assessment platform, if people are not looking for it, you will not succeed necessarily, or it's harder. You need to do it some other way. But they need to, in some ways, be affected by this problem. And in the process of looking for alternatives, Otherwise, they're not going to look for you. Otherwise, it's a problem that they can live with. Otherwise, it's just something that is just a pain in the ass, but like, it's not that big of a deal. So I'm not incentivized to move to something new. So you need to come in, learn about them, see what they want, see what they need. And then you do the second part of the interview. You know, that's a good, that's a good point. A lot of entrepreneurs don't realize that their competition is like another company. A lot of the competition is like a person that's not changing their ways, like doing mm. the things like, like they're still doing Excel or, yeah. you know, like, you know, fax machines, right? Or, you know, not want to change. Why would they? I mean, yeah. it's more, more, it's a lot of pain to change something that is already implemented. And yes, you hate it, but it's, do you, you hate, it, hate enough? it enough. Yeah, do you hate it enough? To be looking for alternatives. Like, I, I don't know, I'm not, you know, I'm making enough profit, I have a good living, like why improve, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So, and if they are not looking for new alternatives, then you're not a painkiller, you're a vitamin. Sure. A vitamin is something that uh, you could be better at if you use it. It's not immediately obvious, but it seems good. You could take it and it would be good for you. A painkiller is something that you absolutely cannot yeah. work if you don't have a painkiller. Yeah. That's a damn good analogy right well, there. Well, it's it's not mine, unfortunately. No, it's not. <laughs> it's something I learned in the in the business school. Yeah, man, that's fucking that's a classic quote right there. It is very popular. Yeah, yeah. Painkiller versus vitamin. Yeah. Oh man. You're looking for you're looking to be the painkiller, mm. not a vitamin. You don't want your your customer to be, eh, I'm not going to buy. If, if they don't buy the vitamin mm -hmm. this month, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. You want them, you want their world to collapse either, if they don't have you. I like that quote a lot. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you something else. I got brain locked. Um, <laughs> well, I was, I was uh, about to mention the second part of the interview okay. of the customer development. So now that you know uh, what are their pain points, now you collect some of the data and then you go again. Mm -hmm. And now you do the product uh, discovery phase, which is like, hello, Jason. Uh, if you recall, we had a meeting the, the other month and you mentioned that you had this problem, right? Yes. You mentioned that maybe a problem like this would be solved by something a product that would look like this. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. In that case, and only in that case, you come in and then you show your demo. Mm -hmm. And then you tell them, okay, here's a demo. And then at the end you ask, would you buy this right now? Yes, I would love that. Yes, yes. How much would you pay a $200 per month? I would pay $1,000 per month for this. Okay. Uh, what are the disadvantages? You start asking questions about this specific thing. They're like, yes, very uh, intrigued. And then what do you do next? Give them a letter of intent. Mm -hmm. And then you write, put in paper. I, Jason Kavnas, would buy this thing for $1,000 because that's what they said. Mm -hmm. Um 
if this per if this thing were to exist and this contract is non-binding mm -hmm. and then you give it to them mm -hmm. and then you see if they sign it yeah. and guess what the guy for for me the guy that said i would pay a thousand dollars not not didn't sign you didn't sign it he didn't sign it even though it's non-binding yeah but that's yet another way of you getting kind of the attention not the attention but like the um extracting the truth from the customer what they what they really want and what they what they really need and what they really would pay something for and so anyways after that there's there's more phases but notice the most important thing here is that you didn't have to build anything to get to this point yeah yeah so um you've bootstrapped so far right Mm, well, not really, because I invested myself, my own money. And then the Johns Foster, which gave us another 25K. So I would say it's half and half. Um, and But we're not, we haven't raised from an institutional okay. investor. Like you haven't like done a like that? No. Are you going to do that like anytime soon? Or you still like, you have like metrics and tracks you want to gain first? I do have metrics and tracks that I want to get to. Um, but I think you you can start fundraising. Uh, I will start fundraising very soon. Mm -hmm. And I'm leaning towards angel investors right now. Uh, I've met with a lot of VCs and I think we're not ready for them yet. Mm -hmm. And I want to find somebody that sees what we have mm -hmm. for the value that we provide mm -hmm. right now more than for the business. Mm -hmm. At some point, this is going to be a business that is going to be a no-brainer that every that people want to invest. Mm -hmm. But right now where we are, it's more about we need somebody that is probably an angel investor mm -hmm. that is aware that this is a problem mm -hmm. and that this is a potential solution yeah. to that problem and that is willing to put some money into it. Cool. Um so anything else you want to talk about? No, I think that's okay, cool. Well, I, I feel bad because I didn't ask you any questions. No, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Um, so can you give us any advice or wisdom or anything you want to talk about before we get out of here? Um, no, I think um, just kind of have fun <laughs> is what I would say. Take care of your family and uh, yeah, just have fun. Thanks. Yeah, Alan, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason, for inviting me. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. You know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up.